welcome to episode 25 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Scott, the Christmas season is fast approaching, so I have an impromptu question here for you to start out the show. What is your favorite Christmas movie? Ah, favorite holiday movie. So appropriate for the Schmodown holiday episode that's coming up. Yeah. Uh, Christmas movie. So does Die Hard count as a Christmas movie? The, the, uh, the, you know, the evergreen debate of whether Die Hard is a Christmas I was, movie? Yeah, I was going to ask, that was going to be my question for you up front, and I was like, no, we can't be that controversial right out of the gate. We have to go <laughs> with something, something more uh, straightforward. No, I don't even think Die Hard would be my favorite Christmas movie, although it is it is a good movie. Um, yes, and I think it is a Christmas movie for the record. Okay, well, you're on the record now. Uh, at, at, at Scarvey Dent yes, on Twitter. At Scarvey Dent. Um, <laughs> I think if we're talking like traditional quote unquote uh, holiday movies, I think Christmas Vacation has got to be up there at the top of the list for me. I'm trying yeah, to. That's my answer, absolutely. Yeah, no, if I'm trying to think of like children's Christmas movies, because Christmas Vacation is not that. Um, I really liked Jack Frost as a kid. Okay. That, that was a fun movie. Uh, I haven't watched that in ages is now. That, is that Michael Keaton? Yeah, no, Michael Keaton is okay. the dad who becomes Jack Frost. Yeah. Um, but besides, I think, but if I'm holistically thinking here, I think Christmas Vacation, uh, Chevy Chase, is uh, Clark Griswold, the whole Griswold family comes over, and the one-minute, two-minute long rant, whatever it is, at, towards the end of the movie, or two-thirds into the movie. Yeah, yeah ex- that that that, that sequence is more, the most memorable Christmas scene for me of all time. Although, you know, of course, there are other classics like Home Alone. A uh, very good yeah. Christmas movie, but Christmas Vacation for sure. I mean, yeah, that's my answer as well. I feel like, it, for one, it holds up so well despite being like 30 years old. Like, oh, yeah. So many people still watch this movie. Like, my family still watches it every single Christmas Eve. Like, and it's just like, Christmas movie aside, it's just like one of the best comedies. Like, mm-hmm. to me at least. One of the movies which still makes me laugh the hardest, like, even though... I've seen it a billion times and can, can quote all the lines. Like, it still makes me laugh. Um, I mean, I guess it, if you're talking about, like, kids or traditional Christmas movies, but this Santa Claus with Tim Allen is pretty good. Um, I, I mean, you know, only seen it a couple of times. Like, I'm not I'm not a super big, like, holiday movie, Christmas movie, or, like, Christmas music person for that matter. Yeah. Um, but, like, you know, Christmas Vacation is just one of those where it's, it's an essential – Especially at Christmas time, but really, I can watch it any time just because it, it holds up so well. Yeah, I, I, we, t- I totally agree. Yeah. Well, the Christmas season brings plenty of reasons to celebrate, not least among them the fact that we get all of the big Oscar contenders hitting theaters. And this week, we continue our gauntlet through those contenders with two more heavy hitters. Later on, we'll have a full review of the latest from Yorgos Lanthimos, the Victorian drama The Favorite. But first... It's one of the favorites for Best Animated Feature, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Directed by Rodney Rothman, Bob Parachetti, and Peter Ramsey from a script by Rothman and Phil Lord, Into the Spider-Verse is a Spider-Man story like none we've seen on the big screen before. Not only is this the first animated Spider-Man movie, but it's also the first which taps into a long-established fact of the Spider-Man comic lore. Peter Parker isn't the only Spider-Man. This is a discovery made early in the film by our protagonist, Miles Morales, an unpopular high school student who gets bitten by a radioactive spider. Sound familiar? While coming to terms with his new powers, Miles also makes another revelation. He is living in one of several parallel universes, each of which has its own version of Spider-Man. When these various iterations of our hero all end up in Miles' world, it's up to the newest Spider-Man to team up with this band of misfits to return them to their respective universes before they disintegrate, and to defeat the notorious crime boss, Kingpin, 
and scientist Olivia Octavius. But the voice cast includes Jake Johnson, Leo Schreiber, Mahershala Ali, Zoe Kravitz, Haley Steinfeld, Lily Tomlin, and Nicolas Cage. Spider-Verse certainly doesn't lack prestige. Does it lack anything at all, Scott? Or is this Spider-Man adventure a smooth flight to the New York City metropolis? Oh, oh man. Good, good, good intro there. I think that <laughs> I was walking out of this film... And my first thought, not to not you know, not to hide the eight ball here. My first thought was like, forget is this the best Spider-Man movie ever? Is this one of the best superhero movies ever? I mean, this movie is so good in my opinion. Like from opening shot, where I I was talking with someone after I watched the movie, they were like, at first I wasn't sure whether you know there was something wrong with our like screen and our movie theater. It looked like it was being like a little right. blurry around the edges. And then you know you're about five minutes in, you're like, no, like this is so intentional and. For this movie, you know, it isn't an animation style that's going to work for every movie, but for this movie, it works so perfectly. The animation is absolutely gorgeous. The voice acting from, you know, nearly everyone in this film, including Nicolas Cage, I think is really, really good. The character development is strong. It doesn't spend too much time on characters that ultimately aren't essential to the plot. And I think that you really, really connect with Miles Morales, uh, voiced by Shamik Moore. Uh, And you really just get a sense of being in when you're watching this movie you get a sense of how cool one this animation style is how cool two it is to be spider-man and three like just everything visually that they do with this movie even beyond the animation style is it just feels perfect this movie's so good yeah i mean i think you're asking the right question when you say is this one of the best superhero movies period and honestly like again not to hide the ball like for me this is the best superhero movie since the dark knight um, I think it is yep. that good. Yep. Obviously, very different type of movie from The Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I was absolutely blown away um, by the animation, by the characters, by the story. Honestly, I was expecting to love this movie um, because of the people who were involved with it, mm-hmm. um, specifically the Lord and Chris Miller. Yep. Um, but I, you know, I wasn't expecting to be so floored by it. Uh, and I think, I mean, you know, I said the directors' names, and I want to make sure that they all get credit. Um, because a lot of people have noticed that everyone is just talking about this as, oh, this is the Lord Miller Spider-Man movie. But really, I mean, Phil Lord wrote the script. Chris Miller is simply just a producer on this movie. Yep. Really, I think you have to give a lot of credit to, you know, the three directors and, and especially yep. Rodney Rothman, who also yep. wrote the screenplay with Phil Lord. Yeah. But when you think about this as the Lord and Miller Spider-Man movie, like for me, it makes sense because, uh, yeah, of course, Lord and Miller were responsible for the Lego movie, which one of my favorite movies of the last decade, probably. Um, and to me, watching this movie, there t- there are so many similarities to me between what this movie does and what the Lego movie does in terms of the striking animation style, mm-hmm. in terms of the really fast and quick sense of humor mm-hmm. that is almost, in a way, more appealing to adults than it is to kids. And in my opinion, like, I was sitting there during some of the jokes thinking, kids are never going to get this, like... But I still think kids will will enjoy the movie absolutely because uh, you know of the animation because it's Spider Man you know there's a lot of great action and everything but also just the themes of family and working together as a team of course we all know the you know the the great song from the Lego Movie everything is awesome when you're part of a team and really that's the message at the heart of Into the Spider Verse as well these you know this band of misfits um, who teams up none of them none of these you know other Spider I, I, don't, I can't even say spider people because one of them is a pig. Um, but Vo- voiced by spider- John Mulaney, no less. Right, of course, <laughs> spider ham. Um, 
I, all of these other spider people slash things, um, there none of them are like the cool great superhero guy like you know that we have come to expect from like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Not taking you know anything away from them, but that's you know sort of the archetypical Marvel hero. Um, they're all you know a misfit and outcast in their own way. Uh, but the you know the message of the movie, and especially you know you get those quotes at the end from Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Um, you know, basically what they're saying is, you know, the fact that you're an outcast, that's what makes you a superhero. What makes you different is what makes you a superhero. And I think that that's such an awesome and refreshing message to see um, in a superhero movie because we are so saturated with them. Um, I think sometimes uh, we can just get bogged down in, in sort of the spectacle of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what I like about Spider-Man, why Spider-Man has always been one of probably my favorite superhero is because there's always that human element at the heart of the story. And, you know, Spider-Man, yes, he's a superhero, but he's also just a normal guy and has all of these thoughts about, you know, why, and th th this is one of the reasons why I think the, the the trilogy with the Sam Raimi trilogy, of course, excluding the third one, but was extremely influential and, and still holds up, even if some of the visuals don't necessarily hold up uh, because we have this sort of, inner turmoil the whole time between uh, of Peter Parker, you know, trying to balance his, his personal life, trying to balance being a normal guy with, you know, fighting crime and, you know, keeping New York safe. Um, and I think that we don't get that in a lot of superhero movies. Um, and so, so I just love the fact that this movie keeps what is great about the Spider-Man universe. Like, I think, you know, there have been a lot of Spider-Man movies, but I think this one is probably the closest follow-up probably to that, original trilogy um and i mean you know the opening scenes of this one were kind of uh, taken back to the events of the um the sam raimi trilogy in a, in a very humorous way mm -hmm. but it, it keeps what's great about the spider-man um franchise to me which is that you know that human story um while you know presenting it in this wholly new animation style giving us a whole lot of new characters to love and to root for uh and it's also just really funny um definitely one of the funniest movies that I've seen this year. I was laughing literally within 10 seconds of the movie starting. And of course, if you've seen the movie, you'll know what, what gag it was that had me laughing. Um, but, uh, you know, again, absolutely blown away. Not just the best animated movie of the year, but one of the best movies of the year. Absolutely. Yeah, no. And you're mentioning people who get credit, you know, sometimes your producers flying under the radar. You mentioned that, you know, Miller, Chris Miller is, is a producer along with Phil Lord, but Avi Arad and Amy Pascal who do, uh, all things Marvel, and particularly Amy Pascal, who does all things Spider-Man within Marvel, they, you know, obviously their vision is a huge part of this, and I think they probably deserve some credit as well. I mean, last time Avi Arad kind of directed a first movie in a franchise, it was, I or not directed, I'm sorry, produced a first movie in a franchise, it was Iron Man 1, which was, you know, the MCU. There you go, yeah. So, uh, I mean, spe you know, speaking of Spinoza, I know maybe we'll, we'll kind of back up here in a second and talk more about the film, but... You know they're already they're already started production on a sequel based on just on the buzz that this movie created, and they're also looking at spinoffs that include you know movies for Spider Gwen and and other some some other Spider Women, as well as uh, apparently Lord and Miller want to be a part of some shorts, so not a full movie but some shorts uh, starring Spider Ham. So th there's lots of movies in the work here, and you know this franchise I, I saw that it's making around 35, 40 million opening weekend here, and, and what is traditionally a weekend that is not a huge movie going weekend, you know, pre-Christmas. Uh, it's a hu making huge waves uh, in that front. And so I think 
Sony and Marvel can be very reassured that they have a real a real hit on their hand, and you know obviously we we feel that way as well. Yeah, I mean, I, at this point, I'm fine with Lord and Miller taking on whatever franchise they want. I mean, let's do an animated Star Wars, honestly. Like, I'm, well, that I'm already exists, working. but well, I, you know what I mean. I, I, I new animated Star Wars, I, not the Clone Wars, but um, let, let's do a, a trilogy. Why not? I mean, there's already eight other trilogies floating around out there. I feel like, um, but yeah, but I, I love the buzz that this movie has generated. Um, and, you know, from critics far and wide, I mean, I was listening to Leonard Maltin talk about it um, the other day. Obviously, this is a guy who, you know, has been a, a well-known film critic for 50 years, and he was saying it was one of the best animated films that he'd ever seen. Um, and I think that, you know, just buzz like that, not just from, you know, your traditional Marvel fans, um, you know, or superhero movie fans, but from people who, you know, are paid to talk about film and to review film like the fact that these people are saying hey this isn't just a good superhero movie this is just an amazing movie for anybody um is is great to see because i, I you know i really want everyone to see this movie um you know the lego movie obviously did very well i i, I think um commercially but i think a lot there were still a lot of people who didn't see it because they they weren't sure what to expect i mean i'll admit i'll be the first to admit when i saw the trailers that it just looked like a cash grab to me. But I think this is kind of uh, a more accessible version of the Lego movie, again, for, for the reasons that I talked about before. Um, I think it, it does a lot of similar things, um, you know, well, obviously not being a ripoff or anything. But so I hope that this will, you know, allow people to discover what Lord and Miller are doing and may, maybe take them to the Lego movie as well because they're both, again, two of the best animated movies that you will ever see, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we talk about other, you know, if, if you're putting it in the realm of other animated movies this year, high budget films, obviously, but The Incredibles too. Obviously, the budget for that is something like two hundred million dollars, and it made you know over a billion at the box office. I don't think that Into the Spider Verse is going to make over a billion dollars. I think it should, but you know, ninety million dollars. You know, if they if they if Sony walks away with this with a with a trademark on the animation style, and you know, you have this entire pipeline of movies. I can't wait to see what they have in store for them. But yeah, why don't we dive in a little bit deeper on the movie since we're kind of still talking super high level here. Yeah, and, and before we do that, I'll just say one last thing. I think that maybe people, you know, in seeing the trailers to this movie, maybe think, you know, do I really need to see this? Like, there have been so many Spider-Man movies recently. You know, there's the Raimi trilogy, then it was rebooted with Andrew Garfield unsuccessfully. You had Spider-Man Homecoming, you had Spider-Man Far From Home, probably coming out next year. Um... Like, I think people might think, well, you know, this is an animated one. I'll just skip it. But absolutely, you should not do that because no. this is an essential Spider-Man movie. And it's something totally different from all of the Spider-Man movies that we've had before. So if you if you have Spider-Man fatigue, um, don't worry because this is not, you know, the Spider-Man. It's not the same old origin story that we, we know um, from, yeah. from so many other movies. If, any, if yeah, anything, they, if, I mean, if anything, they, they, they are self-referential in their knowledge of how many times the origin right, story has exactly. happened because they, they jokingly do the quick origin story three or four times and, and make fun of it. Uh, and so, you know, that it's, it's really, it's something special. And, and it, if anything, if you have Spider-Man fatigue from the movies, like this, this gets you closer to the comic books, um, yeah. than you, than ever before in a movie that you've seen probably with Spider-Man. And if you're not a comic book fan, I still think it's interesting because obviously it's not you're not looking at a comic book page, but it's so cool because I think that this brings the comics to life in a way, right? That still makes it a super engaging movie 
uh, for someone who might not be you know as into reading comic book panels and things like that. Yeah, uh, and so I read off all of those those names. Um, in the voice cast, of course, you mentioned Shamik Moore as well, mm-hmm. um, who voices Miles, and, and there are a host of other actors who I didn't mention. Uh, so I, w- I would love to get your thoughts on how the voice cast was in general. You know, were yeah. there any standouts in this movie? Because obviously, a lot of big names in that cast. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, Shamik Moore, right? Uh, uh, first and foremost, that he does a fantastic job voicing Miles. Yeah. He, I mean, obviously he's voicing a teenager, like a freshman in high school, but, you know, he's, he's our age, he's 23 years old, um, so it's really something special there. I've watched a couple interviews with him, and the way that he kind of imbues Miles is, uh, what, what you, like, visually what you see with Miles, the way he puts life into that with his voice is something really special, and I think that stood out from perspective. Uh, Chris Pine, his very brief cameo as, uh, well, I guess, Miles Morales' world's uh, original Spider-Man, he voices that person. All, all, you know, um, he he only has a small role because then you have all the other Spider people coming in from other other universes and and also Spider Spider uh, pigs, so to speak, um, as well. And a robot. I mean, we have a robot as well. Yeah, you're right. Um, that that is. I forget the robot's name actually, but yes. Yeah. Uh, I know that. I know that. Um, Kimiko Glenn voices the the Japanese girl who plays the Spider Woman from that universe. Penny Parker. Yes. Yes, Penny Parker. And, but yeah, so I think other voice actors, Mahershala Ali sticks out to me just because you know he is such a recognizable voice and recognizable name, and, and his performance come. I actually had forgotten that he was voicing a character in this movie. Uh, Haley Steinfeld, I'm not the biggest fan of personally, though I think she, really. I, I mean, oh, I think she's great yeah. acting in movies. I'm, I'm just talking in general. I think acting in movies, I'm not her biggest okay. fan, but I really liked her as Gwen Stacy, and I think Gwen Stacy is such a a character that that sticks out among a, a, a crop of really great characters in this movie. I think that. Her Spider Woman, or Sp- you know, however Spider Gwen, people are calling her, and then obviously her persona that she adopts is Gwanda, which I think is hilarious. Gwanda, yes. <laughs> um, when she meets Miles for the first time in her in their universe, is is really great. Uh, Brian Tyree Henry, who I, he was in, was he, he was in Widows, right? Uh, yeah, he plays not yeah Jamal, yeah, Jamal Manning. Manning. Yeah, in Widows, so it was good to it was interesting to hear his voice after just seeing him in a movie that I loved uh, just a few weeks ago. Again, I besides uh, it's one of those things where I think there are a lot of strong performances with few standouts, and I don't mean that in a negative way. It's, it's just no, that like all the voice acting, or more or less all the voice acting, was so competent that it was difficult to stand out. Although there are, uh, there will be some takeaway performances, and I think the two that or the th- two or three that stick in my mind are, of course, Shamik Moore, Haley Steinfeld, and Mahershala Ali. Yeah, and I'll add to those as well. I thought Liam Schreiber did a great job as as Wilson Fisk, as yep. Kingpin. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm someone who is a huge fan of, of Liam Schreiber and whatever he does. And I honestly didn't even recognize that this was his voice until yep. pretty far into the movie, uh, which I think is a, I think that's a good thing because I think too often when you have you know big actors in animated movies, you're thinking about the fact that uh, you know it's oh, listen, that's, you know, Meryl Streep, that's not the character in the movie, and I don't think that it should take you out of the movie in that way. Mm-hmm. However, one example in this movie where I think you are thinking about who the actor is, yeah. but it doesn't matter because it's still so funny, is Nicolas Cage as yep. Spider-Man Noir. Um, I think simply thinking about the fact that it's Nicolas Cage, and I, I mean, I think that the filmmakers are certainly wise to this and certainly, you know, play to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, thinking about that... <laughs> 
this is Nicolas Cage doing his voice, just makes his line readings all that funnier. As, yeah. You know, this sort of uh, private eye gumshoe Spider-Man who's really like stuck in the 1920s and he can't figure out what a Rubik's Cube is. Uh, I think in that, in that sense, Nicolas Cage is probably perfectly cast in this uh, movie for what they're looking for. So, yeah, also also give a shout-out to him. But I agree with you that I don't think this is a movie where you can really point to a lot of standouts. I think it's just an excellent ensemble voice cast. Everyone plays their respective parts very well. And, you know, it's not distracting, even though we have a lot of huge names in the, in the cast. Yeah, and, and to your point about, you know, Nicolas Cage, he... I know that I was reading an interview with him, and he talked about how he based his voice acting off of people like Humphrey Bogart, so who, of course, mm. famous, famous for the Maltese Falcon, and other voice acting from that from that kind of age of noir film. So, and, and I think it pays off, right? Like we all know it's like when you hear it, if you're at all aware, you know, if if you are a movie buff of, of any extent, then you're familiar with Nicolas Cage. You're going to immediately recognize it, and you're going right. to and you're going to be distracted by it. But again, to your point, I think that you know. You know, Phil Lord and, and the rest of, of the Bob Parachetti and Peter Ramsey, or sorry, not, not just Phil Lord, Rodney Rothman as well, uh, they know that. And exactly to your point, they, they lean into it in a way that, that makes it a, a positive for the film rather than a negative. Right, man, because it is more of a comedic character anyway, so mm-hmm. you're not losing a lot substantively by, by simply knowing, oh, it's Nicolas Cage who's doing the voice. Yep. Um, yeah, so you already talked about you know, how striking the animation is. Obviously, it's one of the huge takeaways from this movie. There's there's never really been a movie uh, like this in terms of animation style. Uh, is there anything more you want to say about, you know, the, the animation style? You know, what do you think the potential is for this movie or for this animation style going yeah. forward? And, you know, I, I, there were some complaints. You know, you mentioned uh, someone complaining about the fact that or, you know, remarking about the fact that some of the... the environments don't seem exactly perfectly rendered but also maybe that's intentional oh it's totally i mean in my opinion it's totally intentional yeah, I, th- I mean i think so too but yeah i, I mean i personally yeah i don't have any complaints about that at all like at first it's if you haven't done your research and even i i try to stay you know i've said this so many times i try to stay a little bit clean on spoilers and things like that so i hadn't done too much research about the animation style i knew that sony uh and columbia well i guess sony pictures animation uh, in you know, in concert with Columbia, which is one of Sony's subsidiaries, it is trying to trademark the animation style, which is I think the combination of the comic book panel animation style along with the kind of blurred edge. It, there's a particular apparently a particular technique that they use to do this that they they're trying to trademark, and I think that you see that pay off. I think the potential for it is huge. I mean, I don't think that the, again I mentioned this at the beginning. I don't think this is a style of animation that's going to work for every movie. Uh, and not necessarily every movie in this particular Spider-Verse franchise that they maybe are creating here, but it works incredibly well for this movie. And if we're talking about things that drive the industry forward, you know, we're going to, in a future podcast, we're probably going to talk about, uh, you know, other movies that are really kind of, not necessarily even trend setting, but like setting a standard for something and pushing the, you know, the film medium forward, right? But I think this is an example of that, and this isn't something that we talk about a lot because, so many things about film and practices about film already obviously have already been discovered, have already been you know iterated on time after time. And this sort of animation style, to go beyond just the fact that it works well in this movie, this is something that pushes the industry forward. It pushes animated movie making forward. And I don't think that you can give this film enough credit because you don't see this type of film innovation in movies these days, just simply because there isn't that much left to discover, right? And so when you see something like this animation style... 
you know, not only is it fantastic for this type of movie, and does it, and not only does it work well in this type of movie, it it's something that you just aren't going to, you haven't seen before, right? And you know, they, Sony wouldn't be trying to trademark it if they didn't think they had something really valuable in terms of in terms of you know making making animated films going forward. And I think that speaks volumes to what this animation style is. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Like it is. And I get you. You would. You almost are surprised that no one has tried this idea of sort of making a living comic book before, because there are so many comic book movies, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but this is really the first movie to do it, and I think you know maybe there are you know if you want to be particular about the the rendering, um, and maybe you don't think it's intentional. Like maybe there are, you know they're still working out some kinks. I know you know that the directors have. I've been very upfront about how difficult this movie was to animate. Um, I still think that like the potential is obviously like it's brimming with potential, you know, the possibilities of of what can be accomplished uh, with this animation style going forward are are endless. Um, And and so I I think that's great, but I think it's also important that, you know, this movie isn't just about the animation. Like obviously the animation is, is beautiful and, and, you know, it's going to be a, a huge takeaway from the movie. It's impossible to ignore, but they don't just coast on the fact that they have a really innovative animation style. The movie also has a great story and great characters, um, and, and it's really funny. And I think that the animation style being so flashy and cool just goes very well along with the rest of the movie, which is also mm-hmm. excellent. Yeah, and, and if you expand this conversation out from not just the animation, but the visuals. So, you know, some of these visuals are really striking beyond just the animation style, right? Like, for example, the costume that, you know, Miles Morales ultimately dons as Spider-Man and some of the graffiti artwork that you see of his earlier in the film, uh, like incredible art, uh, especially I, I was struck. I mean, you see the costume in the trailers. It's not like a spoiler what costume he's wearing at the end of the movie. But even when you see it and, you know, when we'll talk about the scene maybe later when we talk about the plot, but like, when he first puts it on, he get you know he goes and he goes and gets the costume, you know, makes it his own literally by by customizing it uh, with with some spray paint, and then you see him swinging through the city to you know the final showdown, and you're, you one you're just vibing because we haven't talked about this yet, but the music is is amazing in this movie, yeah, and you're also like that suit is really cool. Yeah, I mean there and there there are just some great shots. I mean obviously I think the one which is in the trailer or maybe it's even on one of the posters is like the one where he's hanging upside down mm-hmm. um, where he's like suspended upside down. You know, it's like a great shot against the, the New York city landscape. Um, and I think again, you know, it's, it just shows that even when you think everything's been done there, you know, there's still uh, a lot that can be done with new technology and it can be applied in a really creative way to a movie which otherwise also has, you know, a lot of merits outside of just the animation style. Yeah, um, absolutely. And yeah, speaking of speaking of what else the movie has to offer, um, you know, at, at this point I think we can we can discuss the plot a little bit and, you know, of course spoilers are, are fair game, so if you if you're not interested in spoilers, then just skip ahead a little bit, check the time codes. Um, but also maybe in tandem with talking about the plot, um, talk about maybe where this ranks among Spider-Man movies because, you know, there are so many. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I mean, the plot is good. It's, it's good, good, yeah. even even great, I would say. I, I think this plot is something that, you know, I don't always go to animated movies for the plot, right, Tom? I mean, we talked about, or I shouldn't say we, I talked about The Grinch, for example, you know, a few, a few episodes back and how I was thoroughly, you know, meh about, about almost every aspect of that movie, including the plot. And, and I think that's true 
through a lot of animated movies. And oftentimes what sets animated movies apart, I think, and, and what gives them real consideration when you, when you talk about Oscar contenders is their plot and is the message that they have underneath the, the visual aesthetics, right? I think you see that. It's what Pixar is so good with and, and why I think not only their animation style is, is so lauded, but their storytelling and, and their themes are really, are really impactful. And I think that this is, this is a movie that has that too. I think this movie... You know, you have so many relationships that develop over the course of this movie. You have, of course, you have Miles with his dad, Jeff. You have Miles with his uncle, Aaron. You have Miles with the other Spider-Man. You have Miles, you know, this is kind of cheesy, but with himself, right, trying to come to terms with himself becoming Spider-Man. And it's, again, you know, some of these plots are not original. You can only be so original when you explore and remake, not, I shouldn't say remake, but when you make a Spider-Man origin story, which ultimately this, that is what this is. It is an origin story. And, you know, you so you can only do so much, but I think that, the, the narrative that this movie crafts, you know, with the different uh, relationships that he develops is really impactful. And, and you know, there is a, a couple scenes that, with Jefferson Davis, who is his, Miles Morales' father, that I, you know, really liked. I, you know, I think of one in particular where Miles is webbed to a chair and can't, you know, respond to his dad. His dad's outside of his door, knocking on his door, um, talking to that. You know, there are a couple scenes that I do think are a little bit contrived in terms of, uh, of the relationship and, and, you know, forcing things forward. But one area that I don't think at all is contrived if we're talking about these relationships is Miles' relationship with this uh, older Peter Parker, voiced by Jake Johnson. I think that, you know, this is the standout kind of relationship uh, arc in the movie. And, you know, at first these two characters meet and, you know, Jake Johnson's um, Peter Parker has been through a lot in his own universe. You know, he's someone who's older, you know, 20 years or so or something like that, I think is, is the number of years that he's been Spider-Man in that universe. And and in some ways, you know, yes, he's been a successful Spider-Man, but he hasn't been a successful Peter Parker. And you mentioned right. so many times about how what makes Spider-Man such a special character and what makes Spider-Man movies so different from a lot of comic other comic book uh, characters and comic book movies is that you have to explore the balance of Peter Parker, the, the, the human being, and Peter Parker, the Spider-Man. And, you know, that's something this movie explores not as a main character and not as a central point because you get that with Miles Morales who, you know, on a separate note is trying to balance his own personal life with becoming Spider-Man. But then you have this backdrop of a really experienced Spider-Man, not something that you see in, in these Spider-Man movies a lot, dealing with having not been a good Peter Parker but having, you know, maybe been a good Spider-Man. And it's so interesting, one, just to see those juxtaposed next to each other. And I think that that creates a really powerful narrative arc for Miles. Uh, but also the relationship that those two develop over the course of the movie, where, you know, at first you have, you know, Jake Johnson kind of blowing off uh, Shameik Moore's Miles Morales and, and, you know, being like, hey, you're a kid. Like, I don't I don't have the time to teach you, things like that. And, you know, in many ways, it's a, that's that particular part of the narrative arc is something that we've seen so many times before. But then you have that change over the course of the film, you know, when they steal the hard drive from Alchemax to remake, you know, the uh, the goober, as it's called. Uh, uh, you have that scene and you, and you be, and you see, and you, or I should say you begin to see how, you know, Jake Johnson's Peter Parker is, is changing, is having to, you know, change his worldview a little bit and me, you know, in some ways even forgive himself a little bit, right? You see that forgiveness start to creep into his life and the, and the new relationships that allows him to start to foster with not just Shameik Morris, Miles Morales, but, you know, to some degree also the other 
spider beans. <laughs> I have to start saying beans. I can't say spider people. Um, spider beans that, that ultimately join them in this universe. And so uh, this movie's impact on, I think, maybe, you know, disagree, disagree with me if you do. If you, if you do. Um, but this movie's impact on me is these relationships that you see foster. And I haven't even begun to, you know, I haven't even started to talk about like the other sub narrative arcs, you know, with spider Gwen and, and Spider-Man noir and, you know, all the other people going on there. But you know, this, this movie is all in terms of its narrative and plot is all about relationships. And some of these relationships really work for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do agree. I think that, you know, many of the standout scenes are the ones that involve, you know, these, these sort of touching moments or, or, you know, transformative moments in these relationships whether it's you mm -hmm. know the scene with miles's dad talking to him from behind the door or, yep. you know the scene where you know it, it's a nice bit of nostalgia but not in a you know obvious or over-the-top way when miles loses his uncle um you know obviously a, a call back to uncle ben um and they even you know make a mention of that as well mm -hmm. um but yeah i think that I, I agree, like, and, and I think that's why I responded so strongly to the movie. I mean, as you can tell, I've said this about, you know, Spider-Man today and, and about other movies in the past, like Fantastic Beasts. I, I like when these big, you know, spectacles also have a really intimate, like, human element to them. And mm -hmm. I think, again, that was that's the big takeaway from this movie, and that's why I responded so strongly to it. Another thing that I think it does great is just the efficiency of the storytelling, because I think even when I just describe the plot, it's, it, it can seem a little confusing. Like, you know, what's going on here? We have parallel universes. We have all these different spider people and we have, you know, the, they're trying to get back to their universes and there's mm -hmm. an override key and all this stuff. But I don't think that this movie gets bogged down in those details at all. I think it tells you sort of the, the bare minimum of, of what you need to know. And it's not really interested in like, you know, diving really deep into, you know, the mythology of the comics and everything. Um, I think it, it just wants to tell a good story with good characters. And I think that even when maybe you're not totally sure what's going on in the plot, um, it doesn't really matter as much because mm -hmm. the movie is able to coast along um, on the strength of its characters and, and the animation as well. And, and I think that, you know, the, again, with the efficiency of the storytelling, I think the characters are a big part of that too, because you do have a lot of characters, um, and you know, some of course that we're familiar with, like Aunt May shows up, um, but you yep. know, but others who need to be established. Um, yep. And the movie does a great job of that while not wasting its time with a bunch of, you know, background origin story type information. Again, it gives you what you need to know and, you will be, you know, totally invested by the end of this movie in the fate of these characters, even though, you know, it doesn't spend a lot of time setting them up. I think it knows what it needs to do, and it does it in a very uh, efficient and effective way. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that I think that the point that you bring up about how it doesn't get bogged down in its backstory is is a really is a really good one to make. I, you know, different filmmakers could and different storytellers could really get stuck on how to like how much information to give about these different characters and you know even right like you you get the most from about miles right but even then i think balancing that lead character is really difficult in this kind of movie when you have other characters but then definitely when you when you switch your perspective over to you know you know other peter the other peter parker is penny parker 
um, you know, Gwen Stacy, things like that. Like that is something that you can get really lost in, I think, as a storyteller. And the fact that they so efficiently give you what you need to know and basically not make you think too much about what you don't know is, is it's, it's an art, not a science, you know? Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think that, uh, th- again, this movie does such a great job of storytelling that I wish more filmmakers uh, would, would pay attention to yeah. um, the way that it's able to, to set up its narrative and its characters without taking any extraneous times. Because as you know, I am uh, a stickler when it comes to running time of movies, uh, just because I think so often there's there's just a lot of fluff that we don't need. Um it, but I don't, I don't think that you can say that about um, this movie at all. And I think, to, you know, to weigh in on the larger question of where this... Yeah, that's where I was going to go next. Yep. For me, you know, I didn't. I don't think I ever thought that, I, that Spider-Man 2 would be top for me just because it has... I mean, you know, again, it doesn't hold up, like, extremely well in terms of the visuals. Like, I actually watched the first two movies recently, and I was surprised about how sort of dated the visuals look. But I think... I mean, it was from, like, early... Like, 2001, right? When it was 2004 the... was, was Spider-Man 2, I believe. Okay. Um, and so the first one was even earlier. But, yeah, I mean, but I, I think it's still such a strong movie in terms of the way it, it weaves the, the Spidey narrative and the Peter Parker narrative together. And, I, you know, I... Maybe a hot take, but I still love Tobey Maguire as, as Peter Parker, if maybe not necessarily as Spider-Man. Um, mm-hmm. But... I mean, obviously, the nostalgia factor of the fact that this movie came out when we were 10 years old or whatever, and I remember going to, to see it in the theaters, that obviously has a lot to do with why I have uh, have loved the, that movie for so long. But honestly, I think, you know, I, I need to watch it again, obviously. But this movie, at, at the moment, is number one for me in terms of Spider-Man movies. I, I, I can't imagine um, that it will be topped for a long time to come. Uh, I think it, it gives everything that I wanted uh, it to give it and more. Yeah, no, I I agree. I haven't seen Spider Man uh, two in a while. I'll admit I I don't know where it would stand up for me in that uh, up against that. But as good as, as much as I liked Homecoming and I really liked Homecoming, this movie is. I mean, to me, I don't need to see this movie a second time. This movie's better than Spider Man Homecoming, and this movie, from what I remember about Spider Man two, is better than Spider Man two. Obviously, you get a lot of. I mean, you get the you get an original story in this movie. You get an original, um, you know, narrative driver that we haven't seen on screen. Right? Obviously, this is based on a comic book series, um, but we haven't we haven't seen this comic book series come to life on the, on the big screen yet. And so, in that sense, it's it's something new. It's something different. At the same time, you get a bunch of fan service stuff, right? Like you get a, you get a Doc Ock, right? You still get that character. Yeah. You still get you know someone like Kingpin, who obviously hasn't come up a ton in the Spider Man movies, but is a very uh, entrenched character in the comic books um, and also is a prominent character in the Marvel Spider-Man PS4 game that came out uh, this past year. So it's kind of on the mind of big Spider-Man fans who might have played that video game as well. So you're, you're, getting, all, you're getting the best of both worlds in that sense. And, and, and I think a lot of part about Spider-Man 2 for those who are novices to Spider-Man universe who hadn't read comic books or hadn't maybe seen the animated television show is Spider-Man 2 was you know wholly original. It's not fan service because it doesn't have a base to be fan service off of, or at least not as large a base from the moviegoers, right? And people who maybe aren't as interested in the comics, but still interested enough to go see the movies. And so, the, you know, this movie, it gives you both. And, and to me, it's right now, like, I, I need to go maybe revisit some of these movies, but it's hands down, it's the best Spider-Man movie. 
Yeah, and to, to respond to your, your fan service point, I think that they do do a great job with that. However, there was one moment at the end of the movie where I really wanted them to go for the nostalgia uh, beat, and they didn't quite do it. And I, I don't think I could really fault it for it, but it was just a little disappointing to me when, you know, Gwen Stacy is, of course, about to uh, go back to her, her home universe, um, and they're, you know, kind of sharing their final moments together, her and Miles. Uh, I think th- there was a moment for them to, to recreate the, the upside-down kiss from uh, the, mm. the original Spider-Man movie because they're both sort of suspended in the air. And I, I, I remember thinking, oh, they're going to go for it, and it's going to be great. Uh, but instead, you just have her going, friends, and they, you know, they shake hands, which you know, I, I respect, too, that the movie didn't go for the obvious romantic angle on that storyline. Yeah, I like um, that. I'm, not, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna agree with yeah, you. Yeah, no, again, I don't, I don't take anything away from the movie for that. I just, I was thinking about, oh, how, how great would it have been if they had, you know, had that little callback to the original movie. Yeah, and, and, you know, I think there, one thing that I always appreciate about Marvel, I think they do such a good job with this, and this is tr- especially true of this, uh, this movie, is that the, the, like, kind of the tears of fan service. Right, so you have like the service level stuff that you and I might get. I'll raise my hand and say I haven't read any of the Spider-Man comics. I'm not getting the deep stuff. But like as I've done some research on for different characters, having after having seen this movie, like recreating like the original costume for Spider Gwen. So you know that costume with the hood and the kind of the Spider-Man knit inside, but kind of the white and black exterior. Like that's her original costume from like literally hand drawn. Looks exactly like her original costume from yeah. that comic book run. Uh, from what I can tell. And I think that's, you know, I love that they do the different tiers of, of, of fan service in these kind of movies. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, uh, it's another great quality of this movie. And with that, I think we can move into the wrap-up phase for mm-hmm. Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. What was your favorite scene or moment in this movie? Yeah, I've talked about it already. I think it's that scene where Miles goes to see, uh, goes to find Aunt May, who kind of is, they're alluding to Aunt May being this character called Madam Widow, who is kind of mm-hmm. like, uh, Spider-Man's Alfred in some comic book uh, series, uh, ri- uh, different different uh, strips. But yeah, he gets the Spider-Man suit. He picks out the one he wants. He spray paints it, his colors, and you see it. And I forget what song is playing in the background of this scene as he swings through the world with his new suit. But man, that was... I, it's one of those scenes where you can't help but just have a huge grin on your face and yeah. kind of, you know, bobbing your head along with the music. And you just... It's that moment where I think... You know, everyone in the theater, like, you have to be vibing with the movie at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for me, my favorite scene was is one that actually hasn't come up so far, and it's probably the, the most emotional scene in the movie for me, and that is actually the cameo by Stan Lee. Um, I will then talk which, about this next. Yeah, this is. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, which takes place in this costume shop when, when Miles has first discovered his powers, mm-hmm. and he goes to buy a Spider-Man suit, and Stan Lee is the cashier in... Uh, in the, yep. the the costume shop, and of course, you know, at this point in the movie, the the Peter Parker, the the Spider Man in, in Miles's universe, has passed away, and so everyone is kind of responding to that. And Stanley looks at the suit and says, you know, he was a friend of mine. I'm going to miss him. Um, and it's just kind of a, a really poignant moment um, in, in light of you know losing both Stanley and Steve Ditko recently. Um, and it, it definitely hit the right emotional beats for me, and, and I think was a great tribute uh, to Stanley. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, it, it's one of his longer cameos, right? Like he has like a series of lines. You get the yeah. full, the full picture, and it was an incredibly emotional scene. Um, you know, and then also, and, of course, the tribute at the end of the movie. He actually yeah, has a second. Cam- he actually has a second cameo in the post-credit scene, which. Um, 
people yeah. people might have missed unless you you kind of recognize his voice. But he he actually does the voice of J. Jonah Jameson in the post credit scene. Mm. Um, but yeah, and then he has of course the tribute to Stanley at the end, and the, the quote that they you know they splash on the screen was r- really really moving. Yes, definitely stay through the entire movie um, and the post credit scene included because it's hilarious. Yep. Yep. All right, let's put a score on it. I think we're going to be pretty high on this one. Oh, How Scott. high will you go, Scott? God, I, I, I wish... I go back and forth, right? It, you know, it doesn't have to be a perfect movie to be a 10. Yeah. This movie is so close, and I give this movie some bonus points for its innovative animation. In my opinion, I, I you know, waxed lyrical about over the course of the game. Mm-hmm. But part of me, there are, part, there are beats in the plot and, and kind of narrative uh, things that I think aren't quite completely tied up and leave me wanting a little bit more. It's the nature of having too many, like the bottom line, it's the nature of having too many characters in your movie. You oftentimes aren't going to get satisfying endings with each and every one of them. But Mm -hmm. this movie for me is getting a 9.8. I'm going with a 9.8 as well. Um, For me, the only thing which held it back from a 10 is actually, I I didn't really enjoy um, the the Spider-Ham character voiced by John Mulaney. I think it was probably just a little bit too silly and and (laughs) maybe threw off the tone of the movie just a tad. Um, but that's that's really that's the only thing holding it back from a ten for me. Um, but I, I am going to go with a nine point eight just because I don't think it's quite perfect. It's still the highest movie that you know. Uh, it's the highest score I've given that's not been a ten. So that's yeah. worth that's worth yeah, something. Same, same for me as well. Uh, I have it nine point five is the highest I I had gone without you know excluding the tens prior to this I believe. So obviously a great movie and and I think it's safe to say that. Into the Spider-Verse is one of our favorites uh, of the year. But after the break, we'll be reviewing the favorite. We'll be right back. You know, the, the favorite, ta- and I, uh, this opening comment is not meant to deride the film in any way, but this tasted like Yorgos Lanthimos light, in my opinion. Um, it's, okay. you, you still get the flavor of Yorgos Lanthimos to continue this, this ongoing pun, but it's so much more palatable than a lot of his other movies, I think. I think that this movie is designed to speak to a broader audience, 
um, in, in a way that is going to be good for its revenue number, I'm sure. Um, yes. I mean, it also doesn't hurt to have people like Emma Stone and Olivia Coleman and Rachel Weisz, uh, even, you know, going further down the cast list, uh, Nick, Nicholas Holt, who's, you know, someone yes. that is a very recognizable name to younger audiences. But Yor- Yorgos Lanthimos as a director is not going to be one that I think many people who go and see this movie will have seen before. Because, you know, even The Lobster, though it was nominated for an Oscar, I can't, I don't know the numbers off, you know, off the top of my head, but probably did not do that well at the box office because it is still a very strange film. And this movie is a very strange film, but it's nothing like The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which I think, I think still to this day, obviously it only came out last year, but is the weirdest movie I've seen ever, I think. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not counting like horror movies or anything like that. Um, but yeah, Killing of a Sacred Deer is, is a real piece of work. Um, it's very different. It has its pros and cons. But you know, to focus a little bit more on the favorite, I think you know, it, again, it, it is Yorgos Lanthimos light, and not in a not necessarily in a bad way, right? I think that you get the parts of of Yorgos Lanthimos that are going to feel recognizable for those who are you know fans of his work. You know, he in many senses of the word is an auteur, right? We talked about earlier this year with Isle of Dogs that you have someone like Wes Anderson as one of the few auteurs filmmakers out there who who does something that is authentically themselves as their directorial yeah. style and, and Yorgos Lanthimos is another one of these people right like you know e- even in this movie you know the interactions the the type of dialogue that you get you know obviously I don't think Yorgos is is not writing these films but you know you get his impact on the movie you know it's him behind the camera the entire time and the work that he manages uh, to create the, the the performances that he draws out of his actresses in this movie, fantastic stuff. And I, and I think that you know I can understand why this movie is getting a lot of hype. You know, if you have you know bodies of, of actors and, and and film critics, you know, like the Academy, like the you know the Golden Globes, the you know the Hollywood Foreign Press in that case, the Screen Actors Guild, you're going to understand you know why these people are chomping at the bit to give Yorgos some credit here because. You know, they probably, you know, as actors and, and you know, uh, film critics, they, they like uh, Yorgos Lanthimos, I would imagine. And, you know, when you produce a, a piece of work that is more digestible to a broader audience, I think that, you know, you want to give that credit to that person, if not for the specific movie, but for the body of work that they've created. You know, we talked a little bit about this last year with, you know, Shape of Water and Guillermo del Toro about, you know, I don't think Shape of Water is an example of a movie that's going to be more digestible than some of his other ones, but we talked about an Oscar going to a body of work less so than a movie itself, and I think that that might be the case this year with Yoris Lanthimos. I, I think that you have some really outstanding performances by, you know, the, the, the women, you know, the trio of women at the front of this movie, and, and you even have performances that are good deeper down the list with Nicholas Holt, you know, I've already mentioned. I, you know, it was funny to see Mark Gaddis in a very minor role, but, you know, those those kind of central four performances to the plot, I think, are all outstanding, right? And you see that from the nominations that this movie is already getting. Nicholas Holt not necessarily being recognized in the Best Supporting Actor category, but you have Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz and Olivia Coleman. It's a crime that he hasn't been recognized, in my opinion, but, yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, no, no. I, I mean that we will talk about that uh, absolutely on a future podcast, and I think that I will. I might agree with you. I need to sit down and, and do my due, dil- due diligence on the supporting actor category before I side with you on that. But I can totally understand that because his his performance is outstanding, right? I think, I think to to zoom out a little bit, but but uh, you know, change from talking about the characters here to the plot. I think 
of the three movies, the Yorgos Lanthimos movies that I've talked about so far, between you know the lobster, the killing of a sacred deer, and then this movie, the favorite, I think this is by far the least interesting of of the plots and and narrative, you know, creative visions uh, that Yorgos Lanthimos has come up with. I think that you know you have, I mean, I, I don't want to spend too much time talking about the lobster or or even uh, killing of a sacred deer, but this movie is ultimately just kind of a, a really straightforward upstairs downstairs kind of drama which you know kind of makes it funny that you know it's been nominated in the golden globe uh, musical comedy category i believe so yeah i mean we'll again we'll talk about that in a future episode yeah. of the podcast but but in terms of like actual plot i like to me this movie is only interesting because of the outstanding performances and, and kind of the narrative weirdness that yorgos lanthimos and the actors at, and actresses add to this movie but not, not because the script or the script, you know, or, you know, the, the narrative drivers of this plot is particular interest, particularly interesting. And so in that sense, I do think that this is maybe where the, you know, your ghost Lanthimus light kind of um, the phrase that I mentioned earlier does take a little bit of a negative turn, right? Because, you know, although it is more engaging with its audience, I think, I think that, be, you know, because this is a more bland uh, narrative, you know, structure in terms of what the context of it is because it's a victorian drama like you mentioned in the intro more people are are will you know take notice of it and be like oh i like you know x victorian drama that i've seen in the past you know whether it's you know downton abbey or you know you know we have mary queen of scots you know we'll also be talking about on a future episode and and things like that like it's more engaging of you know uh, material in that sense but that being said, you know Yorgos Lanthimos, like he's not a good director because he does because he adopts like bland material. And so, you know, when I see, it, it's not that the screenplay or the writing doesn't deserve credit because it still again has that Yorgos Lanthimos weirdness and flavor to it. But you know what we're actually talking about in terms of the foundation of this movie isn't very interesting. And, and so I found that to be one of the weaker points of the movie uh, to to me. And then obviously. Again, this is very Yorgos Lanthimos. So I'm sorry I keep repeating myself here, but you know the the music uh, behind this movie, fantastic. You know all the audio, all the sound, the background noise that you feel in this movie throughout the whole throughout the whole experience. Right, it, it is something that it reminds you of movies this year. It reminds me a lot of Thoroughbreds, where you have this constant score kind of going on in the background. It's never. It's hard to even call it like the score, right? Because it just feels like background music to this movie. But that's ultimately what it is, right? It, it's not just sound capture. It's not just you know background noise. It is the score, and it really drives the plot. It drives this movie along. And I know I've kind of rambled a bit here for a while talking about the different components, Scott. And I want to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, well, so I mean, I'm a little different from you in the sense that I haven't seen any of Yorgos Lanthimos' movies before, and I know I need to to remedy that because you know he's a very acclaimed director. Uh, you know, sort of a director of the moment. And so maybe it was just the, you know, getting acclimated to his material for the first time. But for the first, like, hour, hour 15 of this movie, like, I was in love with this movie. Like, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think that, I, to, to your point here, I don't, I actually yeah. don't think that's just you. I think that this yeah. movie peaks on its, you know, its first impressions. And, you know, to kind of just dovetail along with what you're talking about, maybe this is exactly the place that you're going with this. For me, the Act 2, Act 3, of the, especially you know, especially Act 3, this movie drags on, and by the end of it, it, it felt like it overstayed its welcome to me. Yeah, well, I, I think that's that's definitely uh, something I want to I touch on. But I think that, yeah, I mean, again, starting out, like, this movie just had me 
absolutely gripped, and I, I thought it was hilarious, and I, you know, it was, it's just, even throughout the entire movie, it's just a bona fide original, and honestly, it's, it's something that you can't say about a lot of movies, that you've never seen a movie like this before, but I've never seen a movie like this, <laughs> it, you know, taking the plot out of it, yeah. because obviously I think there is some familiar stuff in the plot, mm-hmm. but just the general tone of this movie, the way these characters talk, against, you know, this Victorian backdrop. I've, I've never seen anything like this movie, and so I think that carries it a long way in the beginning mm-hmm. uh, because it is so, you know, sort of intoxicating just to get immersed in this whole new world. And, you know, I think that, I, as you point, rightly pointed out, the actors are all absolutely fantastic, and I think they also carry the movie a long way. Um, but, yeah, I, I agree that I think this movie sort of, in the last 20, 30 minutes, where is that as welcome in a couple ways? I think, first of all, the characters are just yeah. very unpleasant. Yep. Um, and that's nothing taking nothing away from the, the actresses, of course. Like, that's how the characters are written. I mean, they're meant to be all very unlikable characters. And at the beginning, you know, it's, it's sort of fun because, you know, they're all just sniping each other and there's power dynamics going on. And... You know, it, it's all, it's all you know, again, a lot of fun. But I think as the running time ticks on, it starts to wear on you a little bit uh, to the point where, I, you know, by the end you're like, I don't care. Like, I don't care enough yeah. about these characters. Yep. Like, I don't want good things to happen. Because they're 100%. Just, just very unpleasant. Um, and so I think in that regard, I think the long running time maybe hurts it a little bit. It's not a, a super long running time. It's just under two hours, I think. But, you know, just in, in the context of the whole movie... And I, and I also think, you know, I agree with what you're saying about the plot. I think that, again, I think that, that the actors help it out a lot mm-hmm. because it's a familiar tale of, like, dueling power dynamics in, you know, the, a royal court. I, I don't think that there's anything necessarily new about that. But I think that seeing these actors go at, one of, one each, at each other, at one another, um, is the appeal of the movie. And, and I think that that's what takes you know, a familiar plot a pretty long way. Though, again, I think, I don't think that it takes it all the way. Mm -hmm. Um, But with that being said, I still think this is a very good movie. Um, Yep, I agree. Definitely worth seeing. Um, Extremely well acted. And uh, again, that first hour, hour and 15 minutes is is some of the best filmmaking of the year by far. Um, And so I think we should move ahead now into uh, the performances. You know, we've talked about how great they are, but... Let's start with Olivia Coleman, who is getting a lot of Best Actress uh, buzz for her performance as Queen Anne. Yeah, you know, <laughs> this is a side conversation almost. I don't understand what it takes to be like the lead performance in a movie versus a supporting performance oh, in this I, kind I of movie. Have this conversation at some point too, maybe not necessarily now, perhaps, but I'm I'm with you because they're all three the leads. <laughs> well, I was gonna say they're either all three leads or they're all three supporters. They they aren't yeah. different. Like they can't have. I know that the. Olivia Coleman's getting pushed for best best lead actress, yeah. and I know that Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone are being pushed for supporting actress. And to me, I like shake my head because Olivia Coleman. Again, I stand by my statement that all three of these should be either lead performances or supporting yeah. performances. But Olivia Coleman is definitely not the one lead of these three. Yeah, that aside, the same with the same with Green Book as well. Just to, to briefly make my, state my case, like uh-huh. why is Mahershala Ali the supporting actor and Viggo Mortensen is the leading actor? Oh. I mean, they're both the main characters of the movie. Like, yeah, I just agree. To provide another example. I think that that is true. I think that is less criminal than this movie. <laughs> okay. But no, but I think I I have a similar feeling to you. But I mean, I mean, I guess the bottom line is for 
at least it's it's clear to me in um in green book why they're doing that right because they it's both could win right I, yeah. all three can't win for it's all about the campaign Oh yeah, no, to- totally. I-, I understand how it happens, but I, I don't yeah. know why it's allowed to happen. Yeah. Regardless, that is a discussion for another time. Olivia Coleman, incredible in this movie, like yeah. unbelievable as Queen Anne. You know, from I forget exactly which is her very first scene, but the moment where you know, like, oh, she's the real deal in this movie is I think it was in one of the trailers even. But uh, the scene where you know she's in the hallway going into her room and she's like talking to this boy who's like outside of her door, and she was like, "Did you just look at me? Look at me." How dare you look at me? Yeah. <laughs> and that that sequence of uh, you can't even call it an exchange because the guy's not talking, uh, but is is brilliant and sets the tone for her performance over the entire movie. And the fact that you know, part of this is Yorgos is the writing, part of this part of this is the direction. But the fact that she brings to her performance, you know, an element of you never quite know what she's going to do is is truly uh, beautiful to, to watch on screen. Yeah, I agree. I think she captures both sides of this character very well because we have. You know, the, the side which you, uh, you know, hinted at with, you know, she can really just fly off the handle and, and scream at people sometimes and sort of, you know, assert her authority as the queen. But for the most part, when we see her in this movie, she's a very sort of pathetic character mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, very, very lonely and very sort of like can hardly take care of herself without uh, Sarah, without the Rachel Vice character you know, standing by, or, or later without Abigail, the Emma Stone character standing by. Um, and so I think it, it's, she, she brings a very sort of interesting, almost childlike sort of vulnerability oh, absolutely. to a, a lot of her scenes, um, which I think is really interesting because, you know, when you think about a queen of England, you think about a, an immensely powerful and authoritative person, and that's not at all what you get here. Um, and so I think she does a nice job of, uh, again, portraying both sides of, well, you know, maybe she can put on this face when she's in front of a lot of a people, a lot of people and, you know, do what they expect a queen to do or, or behave like they expect a queen to behave. Mm-hmm. But when it's behind closed doors, she's, she's a pretty broken person for a number of reasons. Yep. No, I a hundred percent agree. And I think that, you know, this performance, <laughs> I've seen Olivia Coleman in plenty of other things. I remember her. I remember my first real recognition of her in terms of like, oh, this is Olivia Coleman. This is who this is. She's really great. Is in the Night Manager, which is a BBC miniseries yeah. from several she's years ago. She's in the Lobster as well, I believe. As is Rachel Weisz. Yeah, she's the hotel manager in the Lobster, and she's also in Murder on the Orient Express uh, last right, year. Which I just watched, and it's great. Um, but yeah, no. So I hadn't really recognized her before. Yeah, you know, maybe like a, a year and a half ago, but she's the real deal in this movie. Like she's really, she's really good. Yeah, definitely one of the top contenders for best actress for me. And I think in the supporting roles, we have two of the contenders uh, for best supporting actress for sure. In Rachel Vice and Emma Stone, the two cousins, Sarah and Abigail. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you have to say about both of these performances? Because I think they uh, they work very well in tandem. You know, chilling. These performances, yes. these performances are are chilling. I think that's the, the best way you can describe them. Both of them. I mean, Emma Stone. We're not really used to this kind of that's what I was gonna say. Yeah, kind of performance. Very that, new for so I want to I want to emphasize her, but I don't want to take any credit away from Rachel Vice, who you know maybe is a little bit more, uh, you know, prone to a menacing role or or it, yeah. she looks like she has it in her. Let's put it that way. And I wasn't yeah. sure that Emma Stone had it in her, but man, oh man, 
is she uh, Emma Stone conniving, scheming? She has it all in this movie. She has everything that she needs. And any doubt that I had about whether or not she could deliver the kind of performance that I suspected she needed to give for this movie to for for her performance to be excellent, she you know she quelled those those concerns very quickly. You know, even from her you know first couple scenes where she is kind of scheming her way up the social ladder of you know the queen's court and then you know to the some of her final scenes where you know she you know spoilers here for those who haven't seen the movie where she poisons rachel vice's character and and kind of you know says you know so what if she dies kind of thing yeah Yeah, exactly and and that's that's the kind of menacing performance that i have not seen from emma stone in any of the movies you know that she's done before she's done before that you know i recognize her for i don't know if she's done a performance like that before I'm, i apologize to any maybe bigger emma stone fans out there who might be more familiar with her body of work but you know this is nothing like la la land this is nothing like uh the help you know any yeah. anything this is nothing like birdman i can't i literally can't think of a movie where she's given a performance like this before and so i can't give her enough credit you know for doing something original, for taking on a, a role that is less familiar to her, because you know it is really easy these days to take on roles that are written perfectly for you and the kind of you know persona that you often build up in your audience over time as you act in, in similar movies and give similar performances. She doesn't do that here, and I give her credit for that. Yeah, and I think to your point, both of the characters that these actresses play seem to sort of reflect, I think, the capabilities maybe of the actress. Or, or, or the you know what we come to expect from the actress. I think that um, Sarah, the Rachel Vice character, is more upfront about you know the fact that she's powerful and she's mm-hmm. pulling the queen's strings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's pretty clear to see just from their interactions together. Um, you know, she she's not intimidated at all by the queen. Um, you know, the, by her position, by the fact that she is the queen. Um, you know, she's the one who you know, is sort of, again, is pulling the string. She's the, she's the one really that is in charge and mm-hmm. she kind of has to be because again, the queen can hardly take care of herself without Sarah standing by. And I think we get that in sort of the very upfront, um, yep. you know, menace to Rachel Weiss's performance. On the other thing, on the other hand, I think you have Emma Stone who is a much more sort of secretive kind of, uh, conniving, um, where, there's always sort of this devilish glint in her eye where, you know, you know that something is quite going on, but it's not so straightforward, um, you know, and, and she's, she's a little bit more clever than she might let on from her, uh, you know, from the face that she puts on for, for Sarah, for the queen. Um, in, in some, some sense, she, she does seem like sort of the, the bright and charismatic person that we know from La La Land, The Help. But beneath the surface, um, every move she makes, every every move she makes, every you know line she speaks is all part of this greater plan that she has concocted in her head to you know get herself in a position of power. And so I think that the dynamic between her and Rachel Vice, you know, particularly some of the scenes they have together, mm-hmm. the you know the differences in these characters creates a really nice tension. Um, that I think, uh, you know, reflects well on both actresses and it, it distinguishes, I mean, it, it's distinctive for yep. both characters. You don't just have, you know, two of the same people fighting for, you know, the queen's affection. You have two very different people who are going about their plans in very different ways. And I think that, 
is compelling for a long time in this movie. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting point, right? One of the things that I was thinking about when I when I thought about the themes of this movie, oh, I guess also two things. First, I want to say I think that the tension that you're describing is emphasized um, and um, emphasized and kind of what's the what's the word I'm looking for? Amplified is I think the word I'm looking for by the music and the score of this film. Yeah, it's really great. And then the second point is that this this point that you're making around two very different people trying to accomplish a similar goal in very different ways. One of the things that I was thinking about, and I'd love to, and I don't think I have an answer for this in terms of how I feel yet, but I want to get your thoughts on is, is are these two characters, or I should say, is this relationship meant to almost be like a mirror held up to, to each of them, right? Like is Emma Stone's character kind of a 20 years ago or 10 years ago or whatever many years ago version of Rachel Weisz's character. And yes, they are going about it different ways, but, you know, did Rach- if, if Rachel Weisz were in Emma Stone's position, would she act the same as Emma Stone and, right. and vice versa, right? Like, did Rachel Weisz have to do something like Emma Stone is doing to come into power the way that she's holding it now? Because I think ultimately, you know, these people are very similar in, a, in, a, in obviously what they're trying to accomplish. And, you know, they're going about this in different ways because they're in different social positions, not necessarily because they are different people. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Well, I mean, hearing you, hearing you describe that, I mean, I agree with what you're saying, and it, it almost makes me think of the movie that you mentioned earlier, Thoroughbreds. Um, I think that there's similarities there, not in the sense that there's a disparity in age, perhaps, and like in characters, in the characters like there is here, and like you know, you're saying that maybe you know the Emma Stone character is really just the Rachel Weisz character from 15 years earlier, but I think in the sense that you know both of these characters in thoroughbreds are crazy but they go about their crazy in a very different type of way and in the end you wonder if you know the more outwardly crazy one isn't the more stable one and the one who uh you know puts on a a more of a face isn't more you know isn't becoming more of the outwardly crazy person that you know olivia cook's character is in the movie um so so maybe that's why i I responded well to the tension in this movie as well because obviously you know big fan of thoroughbreds Mm -hmm. Uh, but but yeah i think that's an interesting point i think that um you know the fact that they are family members maybe maybe adds to uh you know your point and the fact that they come from these very different backgrounds and Mm -hmm. emma stone's character you know is someone who you know theoretically could have arisen to a position of, you know, nobility on her own in the way that Rachel Weiss has. But, you know, for, for these reasons, you know, she was basically sold to, I guess, a, a child molester, like a, a really awful, you know, man by her father in order to like sustain their, their living. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, was, and, it was literally, he lost her in a, in like a, a poker game basically. Right. Yeah. Is what um, I understand. And, because of that, you know, she didn't get to have the life that she might have otherwise had mm-hmm. being a part of, you know, the same family as Rachel Weisz. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's definitely an, an interesting point. Um, maybe who Emma Stone would have become, looking at it from the other side, if, you know, she had not had this intervention in her life, would she have become like Rachel Weisz? Who knows? Like, I, I think that, that what you're talking about is definitely an interesting dynamic to both of these characters that, that definitely goes beyond the surface. Yeah, and I think that speaks to the, the depth of the, you know, the character development here. Again, plot aside, the character development here is, is very interesting. Yeah. And speaking of some of the other characters in the movie, you know, there, there aren't a, a lot of people who have huge supporting roles, um, 
But I think you you know you've talked about Nicholas Holt who plays I think Harley is his name. Yeah, um, Robert Harley, the first Earl yeah. of Oxford. You also have uh, Mr. Taylor Swift himself, Joe Alwyn, who plays uh, the sort of this colonel that uh, that Emma Stone's character ends up marrying. Um, and then you know you wait, what's the guys. what's the Mr. Taylor Swift? Uh, sorry, I'm not getting that joke. Uh, he, he's Taylor Swift's boyfriend, and they are apparently they're they might be close to getting engaged. What the um, heck? Okay, wow, I didn't even know this. But yeah, shout out to Joe Alwyn. But um, you know, there you mentioned Mark Gaddis briefly appears. Some other performances. I mean, for me. I'll just go ahead and say I think Nicholas Holt is outstanding. I mean, as good as these three actresses are, maybe my favorite performance in the movie, or at least for me the most entertaining performance in the movie. I think his character is like this really uppity lord who, you know, wants to be as conniving as Sarah yeah, yeah. and Abigail. He's just not good at it. Yeah, he's just not, not particularly bright. Um when it comes to it and but he also just has some of the most like savage and hilarious lines in the movie by far um and so i i really want him to i mean i don't understand why he's not an oscar consideration i mean he probably won't get a nomination at this point but he's definitely very high on my list when we do our ultimate awards uh, when when it comes to supporting actor performances any other supporting performances you want to shout out I mean, geez, there aren't many. There really aren't many other performances in the film. Uh, I mentioned Mark Gaddis just because he's such a recognizable face. Um, But, I mean, his performance didn't stand out to me. I think Nicholas Holt, of the the kind of handful of other performances besides the leading trio, he's definitely the one to to shout out. Yeah, so just finally to touch on, you know, a couple things which, you know, we've talked at decent length about so far, but, you know, the plot... Pretty, pretty. Uh, I think we both agree that it, it's a little too straightforward for what this movie is going for. Uh, and then also, you know, Yorgos Lanthimos's direction, obviously, very original, very off the wall. Um, what element do you think both of those things played in this movie? Yeah, I mean, more so than anything, right? His direction. It has to be his direction yeah. that that, yeah. that plays the biggest factor. It's what defines it. You know, if someone were to ask me what makes a filmmaker an auteur, what makes them special, it's what they add to a film and removing every other component to it. And he clearly adds things to this film outside of every other component to it. Sometimes it's, sometimes I think, I think it is genuinely very hard to distinguish, you know, what's a director's touch, what's a screen, what's part of the script, what's part of the acting. And and I think that again, you can, you, it's very noticeable in this movie. And I think in a lot of Yorgos's, uh, Yorgos Lanthimos's films, it's very noticeable how each one of those different things segments across the the performances. So, like, you have the acting has a very clear component here. They're, I mean, all the acting performances, uh, the main trio, along with Nicholas Holt, fantastic. You have the script, which, you know, I have some faults with, right? But I, I think ultimately, you know, when you look past, you know, the Victorian setting and, and kind of the very straightforward nature of the, the bare bones plot, I think still has some nuances that are interesting. A lot of that is the relationships and the characters themselves. And then the final component is, you know, what Yorgos Lanthimos adds himself. And you can, you can see it, right? Like the, the creepiness in, you know, how these characters speak their lines. It's not just the lines themselves. In fact, you might even say it's not the lines at all. It's how they deliver them. It's, it's the manner in which they interact with each other. And that, I think, in my mind, that goes down to the direction, right? Like, I don't think an actor or an actress can 
create that on their own. They can deliver that really well or deliver it really poorly, but the manner in which that they are, are directed to interact with each other and directed to uh, speak and, and, you know, perform their lines, that's something that you can really see in Lanthimos' films because it's so, in, in many ways, I don't, I don't know if this gets overused, but it's very off the wall, right? Like you don't, it's not natural to want to perform your lines this way. And so I think it's very noticeable what Yorgos Lanthimos adds to his films. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, I, I definitely, absolutely agree. And, and for me, the, the direction here, you know, I, obviously the performances are great, but I think that it's Lanthimos who gets those performances out of his actors. Absolutely, and, yeah. You know, without his his role in this movie, without his vision, um, I don't think this movie would be anywhere near the thing, anything near what it actually is um, in yep. terms of quality. Yeah. Uh, and one other thing which I do want to mention for the plot, which, again, kind of took me out of it was a little bit, I didn't feel like the segmenting of the movie into chapters oh, yeah, that really was added a whole lot. And, that was just weird. You know, was a little abrupt because, you know, there, there were varying links to the chapters, which, of course, I mean, there are going to be varying links to the chapters, you know, he, in any work. But it just seemed like there wasn't a lot of rhyme or reason to when the, they broke for these chapters. You know, I could be misremembering it. Um, this is okay. So, of the movies that I've seen by him, this segmentation—this is like the most explicit and most like abrupt these segmentations have been. I don't want to because it's been a little bit since I've seen either The Lobster or Killing of a Sacred Deer. I don't want to say that he doesn't also have this segmentation in his other films, but I had never noticed it to this extent in them. And so, it, it is—it it was very strange to me the manner in which it was segmented. Yeah, I agree. I—it I, uh, didn't. It didn't add very much for me. I wasn't quite sure of the purpose of it. Um, but yeah, I think that uh, you know we've we've covered it pretty well here, um, and I think we can we can probably move ahead into the the wrap up phase for this movie as well. Now, uh, what was your favorite scene or moment in favorite? Yeah, you know, I think there there are a couple movies this year where I've had a really hard time picking a favorite scene or moment, just because I think the nature of the filmmaking. Um, makes it difficult for one scene to stand out, and I think that Yorgos Lanthimos's films are are like that. And but but for me, if I had to pick one, I I love. There's this one exchange um, <laughs> between. It's not even really an exchange, right? So you have it's the scene where Emma Stone essentially her character discovers that uh, Rachel Weisz's character and the Queen are you know she's not just an well, advisor. Yeah, I didn't really mention the central twist in this movie. Oh, yeah, uh, that's true. Well, we're mentioning it now. Um, the central twist of the movie, I guess, to just say it, the central twist of the movie is that Rachel Weisz's character, Sarah, is not only just a confidant and advisor to Queen Anne, played by Olivia Coleman, she's also her lover, and, and you know, they, they hook up. And I think that there's this sequence where, I mean, it's totally out of nowhere, too. You have no idea that this is coming, in my opinion. I don't think you can see this coming. Uh, but, you know, you have Emma Stone, who's just trying to get a book from the library of, I think it's Sarah's library. And Sarah's, like, taking the queen back to her room, and they start, like, having this sort of, like, fun little running the wheelchair, her wheelchair down the hallway as a sort of, like, fun little game. And they end up back in Sarah's room, and then all of a sudden they start, like, making out and essentially having sex on Sarah's bed. And you see just Emma Stone just, like, horrifyingly shocked yeah. by this. And it was just, it, to me, it was so, I mean, classic Yorgos Lanthimos, so off-putting. Uh, but it, it's a memorable scene. But there are a bunch of other equally memorable scenes, I think, and it was hard for one to stand out over another. Yeah, a couple of moments which I want to highlight. First of all, there's this great scene uh, between 
Rachel Weiss and Nicholas Holt and also uh, James Smith, who plays Godolphin, the yeah. other prime minister in the movie, where basically Godolphin and, and Holt Harley um, have come to sort of argue their sides about whether they should seek peace talks in the war or whatever. And, you know, they're both on different sides. Harley very much uh, wants the peace talks and uh, Godolphin wants to continue fighting and uh Rachel Weiss, they're, they're, they're sort of waiting on the queen, I believe, to show up. And instead, Rachel Weiss shows up and just, like, immediately shuts down um, Harley in this, like, kind of hilarious scene. And he, Nicholas Holt has sort of a rage-filled uh, freak-out uh, in front <laughs> yeah. of all of them, which, which is pretty amusing. Uh, and then another moment, which uh, I also really liked in the movie, uh, was... After, shortly after, you know, what you're talking about where Emma Stone discovers the, the tryst between uh, the Queen and, and Sarah, they're, they're out shooting, um, and there's this great scene about where, where they're sort of exchanging dialogue, Sarah and Abigail, and uh, Abigail says something about, like, I, I know all of your secrets, or I'll keep, keep your secrets, like, even your deepest secrets or whatever, and you know that she's hinting at, mm-hmm. um, you know, what... Uh, Rachel Weiss is doing with the Queen, and, and Rachel Weiss obviously knows it too. And we hear just like the next thing we hear because they've been shooting, they've been hunting, is a gunshot. And as Rachel Weiss like points the gun at Emma Stone, but really she she goes on to describe how she's just basically fired a blank, and you know how oh wouldn't it be a shame like if I just forgot whether or not I had loaded a blank or a real round into the gun, you know, with this veiled threat towards Emma Stone saying hey if you you do anything about this you know you're you're dead meat uh and so just a really nice sort of subtle moment uh in the you know the war of attrition between the two of these two characters that i enjoyed a lot as well yeah there, uh, there are a couple there are a couple other scenes too there's one there's one really great monologue scene where you have emma stone in her bedroom just after she got married trying to figure out how to get rid of rachel vice essentially and gi- giving is it a uh, joe Alwyn a hand job while she like um, yeah. <laughs> contrives how best very to continue, yeah, yeah to, to scheme up the ladder a little bit more, and it's just a very class. Again, I say this, I've said this so many times on this on this segment. Classic Lanthimos, unsettling, weird scene, yeah. But uh, it it's a good scene. All right, let's put a score on it. What would you give the favorite, even if it may not be your favorite? Not my favorite, but I'm still giving it a good score, eight point three. Yeah, I'm going just a tad higher, eight point five. Um, Really enjoy a large part of this movie. Again, I think it runs out of steam for a couple of reasons at the end, but definitely uh, love what, what Lanthimos brings to the story, and, and I'm interested to check out some of his other movies now, having having had my first uh, foray into his work. Well, it, it, this movie, it, I mean, if this is not a gateway drug to Yorgos Lanthimos' yeah. other films, nothing ever will be, so. Yeah. Uh, you know, from what little I know, I, I definitely think that you're, you're on you're dead on with that, that this is by far his most accessible film to date. Uh, okay, well, favorite or not, The Favorite is certainly a movie which we will be talking about for a while with award season on the horizon. Talking of award season, Schmodown award season is also on the horizon. But before we get to that, uh, we have this little matter called The Spectacular coming up next week, and we'll be discussing our predictions uh, for that. Uh, as well as providing reviews of First Reformed and Mortal Engines. And closing with some news after the break. We'll be right back.
something like it. Scott. Scott, with the massive, massive output of film we get during the holiday season, we unfortunately don't have the time for full discussion of every single release. But I know that you were able to see the new Peter Jackson-produced blockbuster Mortal Engines over the weekend, and I'd love to hear your brief thoughts on that flick. Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of you know Peter Jackson's first uh, big CG visual effects film that he's put together, to my knowledge, since The Hobbit, um, since The Hobbit movies. And this one, not directed by Peter Jackson, however, this one's directed by Christian Rivers, who, if it's not his first time directing, it's, you know, near his first time directing, his first time, you know, directing a a big box office uh, release here. And he's someone who's worked with Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh, who's Peter Jackson's wife, who did, you know, all these Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, uh, King Kong uh, movies with Peter Jackson. And it's his Peter Jackson's production company, Wingnut Films, doing all the CG work, visual effects stuff. And, and it's really from the kind of creative mind of Peter Jackson. So very much a, a sort of spiritual successor to in the fantasy kind of genre, that kind of Lord of the Rings and the Hobbits. Obviously, you're not getting the kind of epic tale of, of, of any sort here. This is based off the, the book series, the this, this steampunk book series by Philip Reeve, where... You have these predator cities that kind of, you know, your large mega cities of, of Europe and kind of wet the Western Hemisphere, like uh, London is kind of the, the, the standout city here, kind of the central city. And, and these sort of quote-unquote predator cities are literally mobile, right? They, they move around on wheels and they capture these smaller cities. Uh, I, I, they have like a, a word for them that I, I'm forgetting the name of what they call these, these cities, kind of... Um, they, they, I don't even know. Again, don't know what they call them. But these predator cities are kind of the the central aspect of this film. And basically, the setup to this movie is this catam- cataclysmic conflict known as the sixty minute war happened some period of time before this. It, it, it's really unclear how long ago that this was, but it's set far in the future after this kind of post apocalyptic sixty minute war, where you have these predator cities and these kind of smaller, more mobile cities that these predator cities kind of hunt for survival purposes and the kind of central conflict of the film is is you have these predator cities who are running out of resources and they're trying to essentially sustain themselves into the future by breaking past what's called the uh the the shield wall uh i believe is what it's called or or the the great shield wall or something to that effect and what you have is what this represents quite literally is an east versus west kind of conflict where behind the shield wall you have you know, the Western static settlements that are much more traditional to humanity. And then outside of the shield wall, you have these, again, these predator cities hunting down smaller uh, cities who who kind of mine resources and you collect these cities to survive, things like that. Okay, I've got the setup of this film, which is not super complicated, but kind of weird to, to set up here. And then you have these actors and actresses that, that make up the plot. You have Hugo Weaving, who's kind of the main supporting actor in the role, most recognizable name by far in this film. And he, he plays Thaddeus Valentine, who's the head of the Guild of Historians on London, which is, the, again, the central predator city of the movie. He's kind of the main antagonist of the film, and I won't spoil why he is the main antagonist, but essentially he is trying to create a power source for London to be able to survive into the future, and part of that has to deal with breaking it past the shield wall. Then you have uh, Hera Hilmar, who is definitely the protagonist of the film, lead actress in the movie. He plays Hester Shaw, who, at the beginning of the film, for unknown reasons, is trying to essentially take out Thaddeus Valentine, Hugo Weaving's character. And, you know, again, this is something that unfolds as the plot develops why she's trying to do this. But uh, a lot of that ties in. And she's kind of joined in the plot by this other kind of lead performance by Robert Sheehan, who plays 
Tom Natsworthy, who's a low cl- a low class apprentice historian of London, of the Predator City, London, who gets thrown out of the city for reasons that I, I won't spoil because it is, it is kind of an early spoiler in the movie, but basically ends up you know having to go on this journey with Hester Shaw um, to try to he's trying to get back to London, not necessarily trying to accomplish the same thing that that Hester is, but but this he finds her as his way to get back to London because she's trying to get on to London. But that's kind of the setup. It's a movie whose plot is uninspiring, whose script is uninspiring. But Scott, I told this to you kind of after I saw the movie. The opening sequence of this movie is maybe one of the best of the year. It's definitely top of my list in terms of outstanding sequences up there with with movies like Searching. And there are a couple others that are kind of at the top of my list. But visually remarkable, visually stunning. The sequence that you see is London sort of hunting down this a smaller, more mobile settlement, and it's about a 10 or 15 minute sequence of them chasing kind of through the countryside. Maybe I'm overselling how long that, maybe it's five to 10 minute sequence uh, of the hunting through the countryside, and it's absolutely gorgeous, Scott. It's it's a wonderful scene, easily one of the best of the year, definitely one of the best opening scenes of the year. The problem is uh, it peaks at first impression, and almost everything else besides the visual effects in this movie is garbage. Uh, unfortunately, the script is in need of life is like on life support from some of its opening scenes. Uh, particularly, uh, there's this scene with Ro- Robert Sheehan and then another uh, minor character played by Layla George, who's Catherine Valentine, Thaddeus Valentine's daughter. That's God. It's almost cringeworthy how bad it is, and uh, you just don't see script writing in major films like this be this bad, Scott. You really don't. Um, its plot is not particularly interesting. Its themes aren't even particularly original, or and they don't manifest themselves in particularly original ways. The only there's one kind of subplot narrative that uh, is actually really great. It's the one standout part of the movie uh, in terms of the character development and, and plot. That is this relationship between Hester Shaw and you know someone who's kind of was her. Sort of, uh, I don't even know the right way, kind of guardian angel or, or someone who raised her, basically. Her, his name is Shrike, played by Stephen Lang. Um, does I think it's I think it has to be all motion capture, so good mocap there. Uh, not surprising at all, given a Peter Jackson film that it's good mocap. And a, a strong performance from, from him, but that's really the only strong performance, really the only strong character arc. And, and because of that, I don't want to dive too deep into it because it is the best part of the movie if you do see it. Uh, but besides that... It's not good, Scott. It's not. It's not good at all. Uh, but the visual effects are truly remarkable, and that's not surprising given who's doing this movie. Yeah, I, I'll admit that the trailer did intrigue me, but once I saw the critical reception rolling in uh, for this movie, my my interest in it sort of waned away. But uh, I guess what I'm going to have to do is, uh, you know, find sync it up with my schedule so that I can either before I go to another movie or after I get out of a movie can walk in, watch the first scene, and then leave. Yeah, if, you, if it's really as good as you, you, you say. So we're, like, I don't know if you're joking about this or not, but like, that was, if, if I had to make a recommendation about seeing this movie, yeah. you literally should buy a ticket to something else that's showing 20 minutes, like 20 minutes after Mortal Engine yeah. starts. Go, like, I know this is bad. I'm sorry. I don't necessarily, you shouldn't do this. You should buy a ticket to the movie you go see and only go see that movie. Oh, but, but like, okay, it's one of those things where, okay, rent the movie, watch the first 20 minutes and literally yeah. just say you're done with it because the opening sequence is amazing. It's, it's great. It's great. Yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, oh, sorry. I guess I should put a score on it. On it? Yeah. 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 Uh, so I was thinking, uh, looking through some movies that we've rated on the lower end of the scale, I think that because of it's like outstanding one sequence uh or out okay across the board visuals are amazing in this movie i'm just citing this opening sequence as an example of that yeah um 
and also it does have this one good minor plot arc. It is better than some of the movies we talked about on this podcast. It isn't the worst movie mm-hmm. I've seen this year, right. but I, I I can't give it better than a five, surely. Um, so I'm giving it a four point seven. Okay, well, I mean, hey, like having one really good scene is better than a lot of the bad movies that we reviewed this year. So that, I mean, that counts for something. It's true, and, and I think it really is easy to get bogged down on how bad some of the yeah. actual character development and and script is in this movie. But they they do hit. I, I do think that they they find some gold with this one particular subplot with Shrike okay. um, that is actually a little bit touching. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Stephen Lang is a great actor. I'm not surprised that uh, that he plays a good role in this movie. Well, I was also able to catch up with a movie. Um, over the past couple of weeks, uh, and this is a movie that came out pretty early in the year, and I guess just kind of uh, missed our radar a little bit in terms of the podcast. Uh, but I've been wanting to catch up with it since I, uh, you know, have seen it appearing on a lot of year-end best lists, and in particular, you know, I know that we both watched David Ehrlich's uh, Top Twenty Five Countdown for the year, which he always does an amazing job with his video mashups. Um, if you haven't seen it yet, go check it out at IndieWire. Um, I'm not someone who always, who who really very frequently agrees with David Ehrlich's reviews at all, but he always does a fantastic job with these videos. He's been doing them for the past several years. But uh, he had this movie at number one, so I decided, even though, again, even though I don't always agree with him, it's probably one I need to catch up with if, if it's you know getting that kind of acclaim. Uh, and that's the movie First Reformed, um, pr- produced by A24, um, and... It it, uh, it stars Ethan Hawke, it, so it's directed by Paul Schrader, um, who you know is mainly known for his work as a screenwriter. Um, he's wrote wrote some of Martin Scorsese's early films, including Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. So you know he's definitely made a name for himself in, in the, the screenwriting world. Hasn't had as much success as a, as a director. Um, most notably, he directed a movie from a few years ago that was just an absolute bomb called The Canyons, uh, starring Lindsay Lohan. Um, that I never actually saw, but, you know, was supposedly just absolutely atrocious. But First Reformed has been kind of seen as his comeback. Um, and it's it stars Ethan Hawke um, as, as this priest. Um, his name escapes me at the moment. But uh, he uh, he's, he's a priest who, had, who has turned to a life of faith um, after sort of this tragic event in his, his family um, has, has left him sort of lonely and... And again, he, he withdraws basically to this life of faith, to the life of the cloth. Um, but as the movie opens, uh, he's invited by one of the members of his church, uh, a woman named Mary, played by Amanda Seyfried, um, to to come speak to her husband uh, in private because he uh, is basically he's an environmental activist um, who wants his, his wife, Amanda Seyfried, to have an abortion because he doesn't believe that uh, a child should be born into, you know, this world that, you know, the humans are destroying and that, you know, he, he, he tells Ethan Hawke in this one uh, pretty incredible scene, like, oh, you know, like in, in 40 years or whatever, the world's going to be gone. Um, and basically the rest of the movie uh, involves sort of this crisis of faith and, and personal crisis that, Ethan Hawke has as a result of this interaction um, with not only with the husband, but with with Mary as well, with the Amanda Seyfried character. Um, and that's, you know, there's not a lot more I can say in terms of plot. I don't want to want to give too much away. 
because I think the plot unfolds in a really interesting way. And I think this is a very interesting movie overall. Um, I, you know, it's not going to be high on my favorites list of the of the year for a couple reasons. Like a couple reasons, I think that, uh, you know, kind of like we're mentioning with the favorite, I think the plot, even though everything else that's going on is really interesting and complex, I think that the plot follow, follows a not necessarily unfamiliar arc. Um, and the ending was a little disappointing to me. You know, a lot of people have talked about the ending to this movie, and, and there are a lot of different interpretations. Paul Schrader himself has even said, you know, there's a couple different ways that you can take it, um, which I don't know. You know, I'm conflicted about how I feel about that. Uh, you know, a movie where even the director doesn't know what the last scene is supposed to mean. That seems like a little bit of a cop-out. But uh, I also think that the transition that we see in Ethan Hawke's character um, – in terms of his faith and everything that happens with his character over the course of the movie happens maybe just a tad quick. I think that this is actually a movie that believe it or not would have benefited with maybe Uh-oh. 10 or 15, 10 or 15 more minutes. Yeah. Sirens. Uh, Sirens. <laughs> oh boy. I think just, just because I was surprised at how quickly his and radically his character shifts in attitudes uh, just based on, you know, one or two interactions that he has early in the movie. Um, but this is definitely a really um, interesting movie, most um, most so because of what it's saying about faith. I think that we don't get a lot of movies that really look at religion in a, in a critical way um, like this movie does. And I think this movie asks some hard questions, and there's no easy answers for these questions. And maybe that's, you know, where the ending uh, succeeds a little bit. By, by not answering questions. Um, but I think, you know, it's not flippant in any way about a subject matter. I think, it, you know, it takes faith very seriously and, again, looks at it in very critical ways, looks at the positives of it, looks at the negatives of it. Um, and I think, you know, it's an important movie for that very reason, again, because we don't have a lot of movies that look at religion in a very critical way uh, in terms of, you know, looking at really looking at it from both sides. Um, so I think that, you know, without delving too deeply into it, cause I think there's definitely a lot that you could say about this movie and I'd be interested to know your thoughts. Um, if you, if you get around to watching it, um, I think that this movie is absolutely worth seeing very, uh, intelligent and, and complex movie. And I think Ethan Hawke is, is fantastic. I mean, the more movies that I see him in, the more I'm convinced that he is really one of our best actors. Um, I think that, you know, I, I'm familiar with mostly with his work from a lot of, you know, Richard Linklater movies, the before trilogy, Boyhood. Um, and, you know, I, I could go on for days about how much I love, you know, those movies, how much I love Linklater. So see, but seeing him outside sort of the context of a Linklater movie, you know, where he often plays this sort of free spirited, um, fun loving, for lack of a better word, like person. Um, and seeing him in this movie where he's a very withdrawn, very intense character, really a side that we, you know, at least I haven't seen of Ethan Hawke a lot, and I think he knocks it out of the park. Definitely, uh, if not a a surefire nomination for me, like definitely a worthy candidate on the, you know, on the short list. Um, So overall, I think I would give this movie a 7.8. I think there's a lot of very interesting things that it does. I think Ethan Hawke's performance is great. Uh, but a couple, there are just a couple things, you know, like I mentioned, that keep it from being a complete home run for me. And I should say that I, I watched this movie 
on a streaming service that I was talking to Scott about called Canopy. Um, it's a free streaming service for people who have library cards. Um, actually, I don't even have a library card, but I was able to access it through my university email, uh, through Wake Forest, my Wake Forest email. So if you, if you go to a university, you probably are able to access it too um, through using your university email. But it's a lot of, when I first got on the, the streaming services, it was just a lot of classic and foreign movies, which, you know, will appeal to a certain demographic. But, it, you know, there was nothing that really, like, jumped out to me. It's like, oh, i got to watch this. But recently I, I hopped back on because I saw that they had really gotten a, a huge acquisition by picking up the entire A24 collection. I mean, even up through First Reformed, which, you know, came out this year. And I, I imagine they'll probably get you know, hereditary in eighth grade and, and mid nineties, probably later on. Um, maybe if we're lucky, they'll even get a hot summer nights. Um, but oh, it's definitely worth, if we're lucky. Um, yeah, if we're lucky, exactly. It, it's definitely worth, uh, checking out if, if you have access to it, if for no other reason than to catch up with the A24 collection. I mean, there's a, over 70 movies. I think that they have up there. I mean, so many of my favorites from the last few years, whether it's the Florida project, lady bird, 20th century women, um, so many great, the lobster the lobster yeah of course it, it, it's on there as well um you know so many great movies that a, a24 has put out never going back which i love from this year um one of my favorite comedies from this year also on there so if you have access to it definitely check it out um if for no other reason than to just look at the a24 collection because there's there's a lot of great stuff in there but yeah first reformed also check it out uh, if you manage to hop on there there you go all right well moving ahead uh, we are going to look ahead to the, one of the big events of this week, at least for Scott and I, and that is the Schmodown Spectacular, the biggest Schmodown event of the year. Uh, it's hard to believe that it's been a year since the last Schmodown Spectacular. Um, it's hard to believe I've been watching this for a year. Jeez. I know, yeah. And when we do our, you know, I plan on us doing a Schmodown episode exclusive Schmodown episode, you know, at sort of at the end of the season. I definitely want to get your thoughts on what it's been like as the first season as a fan. But uh, before we get to that, um, you know, we have the, the biggest Schmodown event of the, of the year, six matches to close out season five of the Schmodown. Um, all the title belts are on the line. Number one contender spot on the line in the singles division. And even the commissionership is on the line. Um, we're going to make our predictions in just a second, but... Before that, I want to quickly debrief from the singles tournament, uh, which came to an end mm -hmm. this week. Ethan Irwin and Clark Wolf playing an incredible and very tight title match, uh, which Ethan won by literally one word. Uh, Clark Wolf uh, misspoke in answering uh, a question about the, the Barack Obama movie, Southside With You, and answered it as Southside With Me uh, for her five-pointer, which would have given her the title or the, the number one contender spot, um, but unfortunately was not able uh, to come up with the, with the right word there uh, and, and lost by, by the skin of her teeth. Uh, a tough match, but she's, she's had a great year. Uh, I think she's a team champion, you know, got herself to that final match, got herself to a title match earlier in the year against Sam Levine in the singles division. Um, but speaking of great years, Ethan Irwin. He's big time. He's big time. No, yeah. I, I was looking at some stats that I think Christian or maybe Frankie Anish posted earlier today, and man, it's incredible. His accuracy, it, it, it's incredible because it doesn't seem like a dominant run because he's having yeah. close matches. And that just speaks to how 
high the quality of the singles play has been this year. Yeah. Right? Like his accuracy rate, I think the score, I think the for the tournament was 80%. And he's winning by one word. Like in this last match, it's insane. These players, yeah, I mean, these competitors are so good and, you know, for a while I was skeptical skeptical about, you know, the quality of Clark Wolf, especially relative to her partner Rachel Cushing who's been MIA from the singles division cuz she's been focusing on Intergeekdom as well as the teams division. She didn't want to split her time focusing uh, elsewhere. But, you know, I think that, you know, Clark has has won me over in terms of, you know, I'm not a naysayer anymore. I, sh- I maybe, maybe I shouldn't have been from the beginning. But, you know, for a little while when she was going on this run of hers, I was like, you know, oh, maybe she's just getting a little bit lucky. You know, she spun the wheel a couple times in her favor. And, and yeah, like, that, that's part of the game, right? You know, you can only right, you yeah. can only answer the questions that are asked of you. But she's proven uh, that, that she, you know, she's okay even when she doesn't get her categories. And so, you know, that... That speaks to that quality. And then to your point, you know, your real question here about Ethan Irwin. I mean, man, what a rookie season. To, to think that he's not... Six and one. Yeah, six and one in the singles division. Uh, and not, you know, that doesn't count his 0-1 in the in the team's division with his you know, anarchy uh, partners. Is it, he was with Sabina Graves, right? Sabina Graves, yeah. Yeah, you know, they had a, they had a tough matchup in the first round of the ultimate... Or, sorry, the anarchy tournament. Uh, but, you know, six and one in the singles division. It's amazing that he's not, you know, the you know no contest rookie of the year. But, you know, there's also Mara Kanafik, you know, it's, it's, it's insane. It's absolutely insane that he's not, you know, the automatic winner of, you know, rookie of the year here. But what he's managed to put together, best stats in the league, I think, this year in terms of accuracy rate, second to only Mara, I believe, or something something crazy like that. I can't remember yeah. exactly what the numbers are, but his accuracy rate is absurd. And the fact that he's had so many close matches and so many great matches, you know, between his match with Lon, you know, he lost to and Draco, but still that incredible match. With Clark, even in the last round when he was facing off against Dan, that that performance, he didn't have to answer a single third-round question. Uh, Obviously not Dan's best day, but the fact that he puts himself in those positions with his performances in round one and round two is spectacular. Yeah, and I mean, taking down McQueenie, taking down uh, Dan Merle, taking down Clark Wolf. I mean, those are some huge scalps to get in your first season as a Schmodown competitor. And, you know, he's got one more scalp. Uh, left to possibly claim, and that, of course, is that of the outlaw, John Roca, who is going to be trying to do something which he couldn't do the last time he held the belt, which is defend the belt. Um, yep. And that will be the, the headlining match of the Spectacular. Before we predict that match, let's take a look at some of the other matches uh, going on in the Spectacular. Of course, first of all, you have the, the Commissioner Bowl, uh, a four-way match, very similar to the, the Manager Bowl that we had last year. Uh and that, that match will consist of, uh, of course, Christian Harloff, uh, Thad Williams, the current commissioner, Emma Fife, uh, head of the Fife Club, and Bobby Gucci himself, Tom Dagnino. Uh, or I guess I guess he'll be he'll be in his Finstock role for for this match. Who can um, say for sure? Who can say? Yes, a very interesting table to say the least. Uh, who do you like in this match, Scott? You know, I can't lean any way except the direction of Christian Harloff here. I mean, I know he's been out of the ring. Yes, he did have his exhibition match against Ellis. Um, but to me, like, if everyone's on their game or if everyone's on a level playing field, yes, the game, anyone can be any. as Sam Levine says over and over again, anyone can be anyone on any day in this league. But to me, Christian's got to have the best chance here. He has, he's, he, I mean, historically at least, he's been the best competitor of these four. Yeah. Uh, and to me, I don't see this going any way except Christian Harloff. Yeah, I agree. I think um, you know Harloff is the favorite. I would, I would, he would be my prediction as well. But I think 
don't count out Emma Fife, who last year, I think in, in the manager role, you know, wasn't sure what we would get from her. She hadn't really lit it up in singles, um, but came at it and really gave a legitimately great performance to win the manager ball, including hitting her five-point question, you know, to get the win. Uh, so, you know, don't count out the preparation that she might put in for this match. And we don't really know what to expect from Thad Williams either because he hasn't played in so long since the team tournament last year with deep cuts. Um, so, you know, he's kind of a wild card. He may come out, you know, on fire. Yeah, and that, and that, it does add a certain element of you don't know who, like, I mean, besides Emma and maybe Tom, like, you don't know what Thad's strengths and yeah. weaknesses are. Uh, so it's, it, it can be, a, and, but, but Christian's strengths and weaknesses will be very, will be very well known based on, you know, his time in yes. the league. And, and Thad does work, you know, at Collider in a, in a pretty serious role, although, you know, a lot of stuff that he has to do is with uh, TV, like he's on TV talk on Collider. But, you know, he's, he's one of the, you know, big editors over at Collider. So you can't discount the experience and the knowledge that he has gained just from, you know, being in the Collider offices every single day. Um, you know, that, that might benefit him in this uh, mm-hmm. in this match. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and then next up we have the, you know, the Inner Geekdom title match. Um, Mara Kanopic, Mike Kalinowski, MK versus MK. Um who do you like in this match? Obviously, you know, the second time they have faced off this year, Amara got the upper hand this time. Do you think Kalinowski can get his revenge? You know, it's a great question, right? I think, you know, some of the, the when the best competitors play each other, and, and you see this across all sports, including the Schmodown, I, I think that it's really hard to beat a really good player twice in one season. It's really difficult. And so I, I think that Mara is the better player. I think that Mara deserves the title that she has, and she probably deserves to defend the title. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if, you know, as the resurgence of Mike Kalinowski this year and how good he was in this uh, inner geekdom tournament that he created, I, I wonder how difficult it's going to be for Mara to beat him twice. I'm not saying it's possible, and I think that I ultimately am going to you know, tip my hat towards Mara in this fight. But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if KO edges this one. Yeah, I actually think I'm going to lean towards Mike slightly, not because of, of Mara's, you know, lack of knowledge in any way, obviously, you know, you know, you said it, she pro- probably has the highest accuracy rate this year of anybody, so it would be, it would be foolish to, to discount her knowledge, but I don't know, I think Mike is really going hard. Yeah, um, I agree. For, for this title match, I mean, the fact that he came so close last time, I mean, he, he did have, uh, you know, again, he, he came down to his five-pointer, and he just got an, an extremely hard question. Um, you know, had he gotten it right, he would have faced Jason Inman at that live event. And so I think, you know, that's going to be sort of a motivator for him going into this match. It's definitely a grudge match for him. Um, you know, definitely could go either way, but I'm going to lean towards Mike pulling off the slight upset in this one. Yep. No, I totally can see it happening, right? Absolutely. These competitors are neck and neck and how how knowledgeable they are in this universe. Yeah, okay, next we have, I think, what a lot of people are, are, are counting as the marquee match of this spectacular bill, and that is the team title match between the Shire Wolves, Rachel Cushing and Clark Wolf, mm-hmm. uh, and who's the boss, Ben Bateman and Mark Yodi Riley. Who do you like? Yeah, I've gone with who's the boss. I think they're, yeah, they're going to pull it out. I think that it, you know, I. it's literally the reason why Rachel didn't compete in the singles tournament. It's because yeah. she wanted to focus on this team belt, and Clark has been understand like she wanted the singles title total respect she could still get it you know beginning of next year if she wins you know we're going to talk about that the number one contender singles match here in a second i'm sure um but you know it's going to be one of those events where i think that clark wolf might be a little bit fatigued 
by her other commitments in right. in the spectacular. And you know what? Ben Bateman, Mark Riley, fresh off their you know ultimate Schmodown teams tournament anarchy win. You know, fresh. You know, Ben still still staying sharp with his you know gauntlet win and his match against Clark. You know, it, it isn't like he's had any downtime really in this league. I think that they Mark Riley and Ben Bateman are going to be fresh. I think their knowledge, the two, their, the two of their knowledges rivals that of Clark's and Rachel's. You know, spectacular knowledge base, incredibly brilliant movie trivia players. And I think that they're going to get the edge because of the freshness. And I think they're going to get the edge because of, you know, how, you know, they, wor- they work together better, in my opinion. Uh, obviously, the Shire Wolves, in terms of a title match, from a title match perspective, are untested because, you know, ultimately they just played mm-hmm. Brianne and, uh, is it Brian Boitler? Oh, Brian Bishop, yeah. Yeah, Ball Brian, oh, Brian Bishop, that's right, um, for the title. But of course, they played great teams leading into their title match. They totally deserve the title, in my opinion. Um, yes. But I think that they, in this five-round format, which Clark and Rachel are very familiar with, the Five Club do a great job preparing for, I think they're, it, this one's going to be a much stiffer competition. And I don't think that they're going to take Who's the Boss lightly. Obviously, they have a huge uh, grudge against Ben Bateman and, and Action Army. Uh, but I think that it's hard, again, it's hard to beat Ben Bateman 50 million times in a row, I guess. You know, no one beats Ben Bateman five times in a row, you know, whatever the whatever the quote was. That, yeah. um, it, it's not from the Shemitah, obviously, but a quote from a different sport. Um, but yeah, I think that they're going to edge it based purely on you know luck of the draw right i think i think that it's just it's their time to to win this belt over the shire wolves yeah i mean this match is really what you come to the spectacular to see right you, you have four of the you know titans of the league or the best personalities in the league you have the two best managers in the league uh in, in you know finstock and m5 and you have the the belt on the line um I'm going to go as a Shire Wolves. I think you're right that it will. It might depend on where this match falls in the schedule, um, whether it comes before or after the number one contender match, which, of course, Clark will, will be playing in. Because I think fatigue will, could definitely play a factor. I mean, we saw recently in the Mark Andreco-Clark Wolf match, you know, Andreco was talking about how exhausted he was, um, you know, from playing in the singles tournament. Um you know, probably playing a couple matches on the same day in terms of, you know, when they recorded them. So fatigue, you know, can't play a factor. I mean, I think Andreco would tell you he didn't play his best match in that match against Clark, missed a couple questions that he probably should have gotten. So, you know, the scheduling could, could uh, you know, play a role. But I think, you know, Rachel, <coughs> Rachel Cushing has taken so much time off to prepare for this. You know, I'd be really shocked if she doesn't come in, uh, you know, absolutely on fire. I think, as you pointed out, Clark is fresh um you know she made it all the way to the finals um in in the the singles tournament obviously ben and yodi are are also you know fresh from the anarchy tournament uh but i think in the end the shire wolves um have just barely uh, an edge when it comes to the strength of their knowledge um you know when, when you put those two heads together i think it probably adds up to a, a slightly greater sum than when you put Yodi and Ben Bateman together, but of mm-hmm. course, again, this is a match where, where you wouldn't be surprised to see it go the other way. Something like a wheel spin or a betting round could make all the difference in the match. Yeah, uh, so, so very excited for this one. Um, in the singles division, we have two matches. So we have the number one contender match, which I was just alluding to, uh, in which Clark Wolf will face off against the GOAT, Dan Merle. Who do you like? 
Yeah, uh, it's hard to say, right? Dan, Dan's got to want it more than Clark, right? I mean, I could be wrong here. Maybe I'm not giving Clark enough yeah. credit. But I think Dan wants this more than Clark. I think, you know, when it comes down to it, Clark, I would expect, will spend more time prepping for uh, for the, the team's the teams match, the team's title belt um, defense. Yeah. And so I think that maybe her singles performance will take a hit. That being said, you know, and Dan's been, been up and down this year, right? Like, he's had yeah, some matches really where has. he's... I mean, he's not he's not phoning it in. I'm not saying he's he's you know, laying eggs or anything like that. But he he has had performances where he has been a thoroughly average uh, movie trivia contestant, and I, some of that comes down to the wheel, absolutely. And you know, he's always one who raises his hand and says, "Hey, it comes down to the questions you're given and whether you know the answers to them. That's what that's what it comes down to." But you know what? I think Clark has shown that even in her tougher performances she's grinded out results like even in the matches that she's lost you know i'm thinking sudden death with sam levine for example right like she has grinded out the best that she can to to keep herself in the match and keep her and keep giving herself a chance and you know to be perfectly honest dan hasn't done that in those situations and i wonder if that might be the difference i'm ultimately going to go with dan on this one because i think he's going to want it i think he's going to be really sharp for it but it would again would not surprise me if clark comes in here and you know Beat, beats Dan, be, not, I mean, maybe he, maybe she wipes the floor with him, I don't think that's going to happen, but maybe she does, maybe she does TK on, but, you know, Clark has shown that even when she's not having her best day, she grinds it out and she stays in the match, and, and Dan sometimes hasn't done that, and I, I wonder if that might crop up again here. Yeah, I'm also going to go with Dan, I think, for the same reasons that, you know, you, you've talked about in terms of him wanting it more, and Clark, perhaps her mind being elsewhere, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I the one thing which does, you know, make me a bit trepidatious about it is the fact that Dan has been, you know, more inconsistent than we are used to seeing from him. Um, didn't play a great match against Ethan Irwin when, you know, he got eliminated in the singles tournament. Obviously did not play a great match early on against Andrew Guy. But, he, you know, he's had some really good matches both in the Anarchy tournament with Roca and then, you know, that match against Stacey Howard. I mean, that was the old Dan Merrill right there, mm-hmm. uh, the way he... He ran rough shot over Stacy, so it'll depend on what Merle we get. But uh, you know, even an average Merle is better than a lot of players in this league. Uh, so not, I'm gonna go not with, better than Clark, though. No, not better than Clark. I agree. Um, but you know, again, we don't know what version of Clark Wolf we're going to get either. Sure. Uh, sure. So I'm going to I'm going to edge towards Dan on this one as well. Sounds good. And finally, we have the singles title match between. You're uh, missing the Star Wars match, but yeah. Oh yeah. Well. The, I guess, I guess we need to predict the uh, the, the Star Wars match. Um, Adam, Alex Damon, the Star Wars champion, uh, will be going up against Ken Knapsack, who managed to uh, to procure himself uh, a title match. Uh, what do you think about this one? Ken's had a, a rough go, lost his last two matches in this division. Do you think he can uh, pull off the upset here? No, I don't see it. I think Alex Damon, the demon Alex Damon, and his uh, his solo entry music is gonna is gonna. Continue to, to hold down the title belt until Sam Whitworth comes and challenges him. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think from what we've seen from Alex Damon in the few Star Wars matches this year, like the only person to me who, who actually could give him a run for his money is uh, is Sam Whitworth. Uh, so until that day comes, I, I think Alex will hold on to it, and I think he'll be able to, to defeat Ken. I think it'll be a good um, match. I shouldn't. I, I said it flippantly yeah. as if it won't be a good match. I think Ken will definitely show up for this match. I think he'll give a better performance than you know his last performance where he had the triple threat match against Alex Damon. And um, I mean, the Star Wars match, he was so close last year to, to yeah. retaining his belt. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, that Warriors. was a fantastic performance. I'm just talking about yes. his performance this year was yeah. was not a good one. 
at the live event. But uh, yeah, no, I, I think he'll it'll be a good match, but I, I don't see him beating Alex Damon. Yeah, I agree. And so now finally getting to that uh, that Star Wars uh, uh, singles title match, rather, uh, we have the champion, as, as I mentioned earlier, John the Outlaw Roca, uh, going up against uh, Ethan, big-time Erwin, winner of the singles tournament, clash of, of two titans, one, you know, a, a seasoned veteran of the game, one of the Mount Rushmore figures in the Schmodown, and the other a on-fire rookie and maybe maybe a future Mount Rushmore head. Uh, who do you think comes out on top on this one? I, I have a feeling I know who you're going to take, but, but <laughs> let's, let's hear it anyway. It's, it's going to be big time. It's, it's going to be yeah. Ethan Irwin. He, I mean, the, the stats show that he should win the match, right? And now that he has a... And I, Super I think, Bowls aren't won on paper. Super Bowls aren't won on paper, but I tell you what, I think that if this were a, diff, if this were a different scenario where Ethan Irwin hadn't played a five-round match before, I don't think that he would win. Yeah. But because he gets this five-round experience playing against Clark, who's a great competitor, especially in the five-round format... I think now he's going to come into this match with Roca, not only really wanting it, but also being familiar with that format. Of course, Roca has more familiarity than Ethan does, but the fact that he's been exposed to it once is is going to make all the difference for me in this, and I do think that his knowledge is better than Roca's. So I think that he's going to win. Yeah. I, I'm going to lean towards Ethan as well, even though you know I, I am a big fan of the Outlaw. We'll be rooting for the Outlaw. Um, I think that, you know, the, the demeanor of both competitors could play a role because we know that, that Roca is always, you know, very intense, very competitive. He's going to want to retain this belt, you know, more than anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think sometimes his passion can, like, cloud his, his knowledge a bit. And with Ethan, we've seen someone who hasn't really been rattled by anything so nope. far in this showdown. He, yeah. he doesn't seem like he gets very easily intimidated. Uh, you know, he, he did talk about having a tough opponent in Clark Wolf, and I don't think he's going to take Roka lightly at, at all. No, I don't but, think so either. you know, I think the competing personalities there could also have a role in how this match comes out. And yeah, ultimately, you know, as great of a player as Roka is, one of the, you know, the, the greatest of all time, I think at the moment Ethan's knowledge is, is just too vast um, for Roka. So I'm going to lean towards big time as well. I'm going to say the rookie finishes season five with a belt on his shoulder. I couldn't agree more. All right. Well, we have that to look forward to on Friday, December 21st. Of course, make sure to to hop on the Collider videos channel. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be released three videos. Um, you know, in based on the past, they'll be staggered throughout the day uh, when the release of, of the videos are. But, you know, just keep your eye on Collider for those. It's going to be a, a great event as always. Absolutely. Um, Finally, before we finish today, we have just a few news items. Um, of course, uh, I, probably the biggest news item that, that we've had over the past couple of weeks is that uh, we had the, the, the first trailer, the long-awaited first trailer for Avengers Endgame, um, which is revealed as, as the, you know, the next movie in the Avengers franchise, the follow-up to Infinity War, uh, to be released in April of 2019. Uh, what, what were your thoughts on this trailer? I know we talked about it a little bit. Oh man, it's it's good. I I remember. It's I don't know really if good. we. I don't know if we ever talked about the original Avengers trailer last year. I actually can't remember when it came out. If it came out when we had started doing the podcast, but mm-hmm. this I loved that first trailer last year. The Thanos voiceover was amazing in that in that Infinity first Infinity War trailer. And this trailer, for completely different reasons, is just as if not better, just as good if not better than that trailer. I mean, that opening first minute or so where yeah. it's just Tony Tony's monologue. Uh, is amazing. Hits you hard, right? Like, 
<laughs> I, I don't know if it was you or someone else I was talking to, Scott, that said like, hits you like a train. Basically, yeah, that's what I, that it, was me. Yeah, it, it, and it does. It hits you like a train. And yes, it becomes clear through the rest of the trailer that that Tony's not alone on that spacecraft. Um, it seems like Nebula is with him. But, uh, I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe I misinterpreted some scenes in the trailer. But I think that's right. Yeah, I think that that opening sequence really sets the tone for this movie. And then it obviously, it, well, I shouldn't say obviously if you haven't seen it, but then it switches switches gears and, and goes to Earth with the you know the remnants of the Avengers left over there with Cap and, and um, Black Widow and, and a few others and as well, you know, including the Hulk, um, Bruce Banner. But then, you know, it's it's such a good trailer. I could not be more hype about this movie. I I don't know if it's true or not, but I've heard a rumor that the the un the the current cut of the movie, which obviously it's going to get cut down substantially before it actually hits theaters, is currently close to four hours. Oh, um, that ain't it, chief. Oh no, it's not. Okay, it's not. It's not. It's going to be like half as long as that, probably. Right. Okay, not half, but it, 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 there's no and way this everybody's re- going to be like release the Snyder cut. But honestly, I don't like. I want them to do that. I don't want. I don't want that to be the theatrical release, Scott. But I want. Yeah. If, if it is true sure that, that there is a four-hour cut of this version of this movie right now, I want that uncut version released yeah, at some point. Yeah, I'm sure they would release it. Um, it. It's really interesting. I think obviously the really noticeable part of this trailer is it's the the lack of of Thanos in it for any substantial portion of it. Mm-hmm. There's one cut. We see the gauntlet, right? Okay, yeah. So you see his armor on it, like yeah. a scarecrow thing, which is apparently a callback to a, a certain comic strip. Um, and you also see him walking through a field of like flowers with his hand like caressing flowers and stuff but very brief shots of thanos here so not much on that on that front which i thought was really interesting i think that they will likely explore that much further in the next trailer that they release uh which could be as you know as soon as the super bowl i'd imagine um mm-hmm. but but we'll see and i think that i mean this movie scott it's gonna be it's gonna be so good yeah the the trailer definitely has gotten me really excited for it um of course you know a couple other takeaways you know we don't see Spidey, we don't see T'Challa, we don't see... Well, they've all been dusted. Well, exactly. We don't see, you know, some of the people who were were dusted at the end of uh, Infinity War. So, you know, we don't know what's going to happen to these characters, you know, going forward. So I like that, you know, it didn't reveal too much. Also, the reveal of Hawkeye slash Ronan was pretty cool. That was the one thing Uh, I wanted still to call out, because the one thing they did reveal, which I was surprised that they would reveal so early, but it makes sense to me based on the uproar about the lack of... Hawkeye in the last film was, uh, of course, Jeremy Renner. Yeah, and uh, but but of course we also see in sort of the post-credit scene, if you will, of the trailer, uh, Ant Man is going to be back as well, which I'm excited to see. You know, I enjoyed Ant Man and the Wasp. I think that he's a very entertaining character, so I think it'll be interesting uh, to see him fit in with the other Avengers as well. Yeah, my one concern about seeing Ant Man so prominent in this trailer, <laughs> okay, and I know this was my major complaint of also with Ant Man and the Wasp was. That if they lean into like the quantum realm science in the, yeah. as like a major like plot crux for like this movie and going back in time or some something of that nature, which I've heard, it seems like some people who are like deep in the Marvel lore think that that's might be the direction they're going in terms of like changing time and and, and trying to fix undo what's been done at the end of you know Avengers Infinity War. I'm gonna be really disappointed because that's really really weak. It's the weakest part of those that Ant Man movie. I think it is the, is the quantum realm science. Yeah, I agree. It's it's a little dense, so hopefully they don't uh, don't lean into that too much. Um, I'm with you on that, but it should be uh, you know 
an, an amazing uh, spectacle to be sure, and, I, and I'm excited for it as well. Yep. Even you know, being not being the hugest Marvel fan. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, another big story. Um, of course, we had another uh, another Twitter uh, Twitter circus uh, involving Kevin Hart, who yep. was initially picked to uh, to host the Oscars. Much to the to, to, much to our chagrin. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say to the chagrin. I think of both of us. Uh, not not a huge fan of his his comedy, um, but uh, just a day or two later, um, stepped down after uh, some some internet warriors. I don't know what you want to call them. Uh, tracked down some of his old tweets from about eight years ago, um, which you know displayed some homophobia. Um, some and Kevin Hart displayed some homophobia. <laughs> well, yeah, you know what I mean, uh, but. Kevin Hart decided to step down as a result of the backlash involving these tweets. You know, of course, this is not the first time we've seen something like that. We talked about James Gunn um, earlier this year having to step down from Guardians of the Galaxy because of his past tweets being digged up. Seems like a trend now. Um, any thoughts without getting too, you know, hot takey on this? I don't know. I mean, I don't think I have any hot takes on this. I think that... Yeah. I'm not... I'm obviously not thrilled about this whole situation, Right. Obviously, like, I. What, sorry, go ahead. In, in terms of the phenomenon of like tracking down old tweets, like what do you have an opinion on this? I don't know if I do actually. I mean, I think that we're. I mean, the reality is that we're in a world where like if you put something on Twitter and you don't and you leave it up there, like yeah. it, it's going to be fair game. These people are like, and I say these people, twi- these Twitter warriors are going to hunt are going to hunt it down if they don't like you. Like they they will literally scroll through, you know, fifteen years or however long Twitter's been around of tweets to find something against you and that like that's what that is what it is right for me I'm, i don't have an opinion on whether i like or dislike that i think that people can change and their views can change and people yeah. people can evolve and become better over time that being said like it wasn't my impression that he was particularly apologizing for his beliefs uh and so that i don't find particularly tasteful and i mean just on a personal note not uh, you know stepping back a little bit from the homophobic remarks and just thinking about the oscars in general I wasn't, uh, you know, you noted this already, I wasn't thrilled about Kevin Hart hosting, so right. the fact that someone else, hopefully better, will be hosting the Oscars is something that I like. That being said, I don't necessarily like the, you know, the context in which Kevin Hart has been removed from the Oscars. One, because I don't like someone being homophobic, and and two, it, it is it is a trend that we're seeing, and, you know, whether that's troubling to you or not, it's uh, it's something that, you know, people are just going to have to come come to terms with, I think. Yeah, I think this, for me, is just really a case of where do we draw the line, because I think at a certain point we do have to acknowledge, as you're saying, that people have a capacity for change and that people can change, um, you know, in their beliefs and that, you know, particularly on the issue of of gay rights, like a lot of people have changed their tenor just in recent years. Um, So, you know, how how do we respond to that? but also, you know, I think, again, we have to look at sort of a fact-specific inquiry to use a, uh, a law school phrase there. Um, and, and here, you know, I think, you know, as you pointed out, maybe we don't have a lot of apologies. We don't we don't have the kind of, 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 of apology that, you know, people would have wanted, that the Academy would have wanted. And so maybe this is a situation where, yeah, it's proper for him to step down. Um, mm-hmm. So 
you know, it's definitely an interesting phenomenon. I'm sure this won't be the last that we see of it, but I also think that celebrities are definitely going to be a lot more careful now and probably be hiring folks to uh, to go through their old tweets and, and, you know, clean things up just to avoid future scenarios like this. Yeah, I think that that might have literally already happened now. So Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on a more positive note, uh, something you uh, turned me on to, this, is, this doesn't have to do per se with movies, but... Uh, a new television series, animated series, which I'm excited about, coming to Netflix on January 18th. The release date was just confirmed. Carmen Sandiego, uh, a, a rehash of the you know the old series uh, from when we were kids about the you know world famous thief Carmen Sandiego. Gina Rodriguez, mm-hmm. uh, of course mm-hmm. from Jane the Virgin, is going to voice uh, Carmen Sandiego, and it was also confirmed that Finn Wolfhard um, from Stranger Things and It. Um, is going to be sort of the voice of, of Carmen's chief accomplice um, in the series. So I take it you're excited for this as well. Yeah, I'm really interested in what they're going to do with this. It's obviously not something I was that anyone was probably asking for yeah. at all, but I'm into it. I'm here for it. I, I'm very interested in what this is going to end up being like. And, and I, I am, yeah, I, that's really all I can say. I don't think I have any like other perspectives on this. This could be really good. I mean, We've talked about Gina Rodriguez before on here, um, I think, right? She's been in the movie. Yeah, she's in about. Annihilation, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what it's like. I'm I'm thumbs up so far, but we'll <laughs> prepare to revise if, if it's not good. Yeah, it will be interesting to see just because, you know, Carmen Sandiego has come up in a lot of different forms, um, at least when we were kids. I mean, there was like a game show, you know, involving Carmen Sandiego. Mm-hmm. I, I, I remember mean, it, that you know used to I, come on when we were kids, and I think its its origin is kind of uh, what's the right like word educational it, yeah ed, edutainment like, series of, yeah. of sort of things kind of like I don't want to compare it too closely to something like Clue uh, or Blue's Clues um, yeah but it's very much like an educational kids show right yeah uh, yeah so it, it'll be interesting to see like you know how how deep they go with the narrative on this but finally. Um, you know, continuing along with the awards uh, season uh, results, we had the L.A. film critics who handed down uh, the winner, um, the winners for their uh, annual awards at their annual lunch this past week. Uh, Best Picture went to Roma, Al- Alfonso Cuaron's Spanish language film, which we will be discussing on our next episode of the podcast. Um and the runner-up was Burning, uh, the Korean film, which I haven't seen yet, but really want to. Um, for Best Director, we had uh, Deborah Granick, uh, kind of a surprise winner there, you know, for her, her direction on Leave No Trace, beating out Alfonso Cuaron for Roma. Um, Best Actor, Ethan Hawke, first reformed, talked about him earlier, so, you know, great to see him take on the accolades. And Ben Foster was the runner-up for, for Leave No Trace. Interesting that he, he showed up in the Best Actor um, category. I think that's appropriate, but I think he's being he's campaigning for you know the the Globes and the Oscars as more of a supporting role, uh, from at least from what I've seen. So interesting to see that the you know the LA film critics kind of mostly ignored that. Um, best screenplay. Very excited to see uh, Nicole Hall of Center and Jeff Whitty win for Can You Ever Forgive Me? Uh, Deborah Davis, Tony McNamara for the favorite as the runner up. Best actress Olivia Coleman in the favorite. Um, with Tony Collette in Hereditary as the runner-up. And then the supporting roles, respectively, we had Regina King winning for If Beale Street Could Talk. She's pretty much swept so far uh, from what I have seen. Um, 
in, in uh, you know the awards that have been handed down so far. Elizabeth Debicki was the runner-up, however, for Best Supporting Actress, which I was you know excited to see because I, I did happen to just to briefly mention I did happen to see Widows as well um, since our last episode when you talked about it and loved it. Um, really, really uh, great thriller. Um, what did you score it, Scott? I'd probably give it like a solid 8.8 to 8.9. Okay. <laughs> it's definitely going to be in contention for my, my year-end list. Um, really good acting. Uh, Love the, the staging of it by Steve McQueen. Kind of. Did you like I the twist? Saw, Did you like the twist? That's what I was about to say. I kind of say I saw the twist coming. Um, I, you know, which maybe means I'm not the hugest fan of it. But it wasn't a huge detractor from the movie which was pretty satisfying. Could, I, could, I could have done with a little bit more of an ending as well, but overall, very strong film. And I agree with you. I, I really liked Elizabeth Debicki probably more than anyone in the movie. So, love seeing her get this recognition here. Finally, uh, Stephen Yun was the winner for Best Supporting Actor for his role in Burning. And uh, runner-up to him was Hugh Grant in Paddington 2, which I think a lot of people were excited about. Um, so, yeah, was a little bit disappointed to see that uh, Justin Hurwitz only managed to be the runner-up for Best Music and Score. Uh, he lost out to Nicholas Bertel for If Beale Street Could Talk. Hopefully not a, not a trend that continues, although, of course, I, I, you know, I haven't seen If Beale Street Could Talk, but that score for First Man is so amazing, I can't imagine... Um, you know, anything be- beating it for me, but who knows. Uh, and finally, as an interesting note, uh, Hayao Miyazaki was given the Career uh, Achievement Award by the LA Film Critics. So well deserved. I know that, well deserved. Yeah, I know that that's something you, you'll be excited about. But yeah, so just, you know, just some more um, results from the awards season as, as we trudge on towards the big shows. On our next episode, we will be discussing the nominations handed down for, I guess, sort of the, the number two and number three award shows, if you will, behind the Oscars, those being the Golden Globes and the Screen Actors Guild Awards. We will be doing a full breakdown of those nominations on our next episode. Um, and for now, I think that should just about do it for this week's episode. Scott, where can our lovely listeners find you on Twitter? You can find me at at SShelton2013. I'm, I'm trying to get a little bit more active, Scott. Can you confirm that I'm being a list a little bit more active than I have been? Yes, a, li- a little bit more. Uh, I think you. I, I saw you had a couple tweets this week. Can't remember what they were about per se uh but i, I know that, that you were tweeting and, and retweeting some so so i agree there you go at s shells in 2013 yeah and you can find me at scarvy dent still as active as ever um college basketball season going well right now uh for for both of my schools both of my teams so um you know you'll, you'll see me tweeting about that for sure uh we hope that you have enjoyed this episode of some like it scott if you have and you'd like to support our show don't forget about our Patreon page. But if you choose not to support our Patreon, that's okay, too. We would love it if you rated and reviewed us on iTunes so that we can continue to grow our listener base. And we hope that you'll be back for our next episode on which, God willing, we will be reviewing The Mule and Roma. For now, I'm Scott Harvey. For Scott Shelton, see you next time. Thanks, everyone.